Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Slash Film Daily. Today, we're going to finish counting down the best movie moments of 2020. I'm Jacob Hall, the managing editor of SlashFilm.com, and joining me are Slash Film Weekend editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writers Hoy Trambui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Oh, hello. Okay, folks, this is part two of our top 50 list. If, you, if you're jumping in now, God help you, God bless you. Uh, you, you can listen to this, but you, you should go back and listen to part one, where we knocked out the 24 moment for 24 moments of our top 50 list. We still have a lot more to go. So uh, once again, spoilers are on the table, except for a handful of movies that we'll have marked in the show notes. Uh, so, like I said, don't yell at us if we spoil the ending of Bad Boys for Life for you. Uh, but yeah, you have 24 slots locked down, guys. You have 26 slots left and a lot more to talk about. So we need to get ruthless here. We need to start realizing that, uh, look at this list. I'm very happy with what we have in here. But I think at some point in the next hour or so, I'm going to get very, very mad that we let another round or, or, um, or Tesla, or <laughs> Freaky on this list, being like, why do we let that on the list instead of this? That's going to start happening. So we need to, we need to be a little more brutal, I think, and uh, maybe put up a little more force if we need to. Uh, no regrets to any of these moments, the 24 great moments, but I think we're all we're all going to grow to hate all these moments as we realize <laughs> that they're keeping something we love off the list. All right, so with that said, uh, we'll enter our rotation uh, from, yeah, from last time soon enough, but... We need to take a look at this main list and, and kill a bunch of things and move a bunch of things in discussion. It's clearly there's stuff here that belongs in the main list, stuff that simply does not. So, scrolling down to our list, guys. Uh, let's start at the top. Uh, the scientific explanation for the pickling in an American pickle. This is the amazing, very fast joke where the audio cuts out as scientists explain how Seth Rogen could be pickled. And the narration explains that it was all a very excellent, satisfying explanation. <laughs> and they completely sidestep all of it. I think it's a great joke. Maybe for me, top 50. What does a group think, though? I uh, haven't seen American Pickle, so I can't weigh in on this. Me it's neither. A, it's a very funny joke. It's probably the funniest joke in the whole film, but I don't think it belongs in I don't, a, a I best don't, of the year list. I, I, I'm of the mind. I, I, I We don't have tons of comedy on this list. So there's a lot of very serious, dramatic moments. And I do think that this joke is 
hilarious. It's very, very good, especially because like it's not something that is, you know, meant to be ruckusly hilarious. It's just a quick little, you know, this was everything was explained perfectly nice. And, da, da, da. and I just I, I think it's great. I personally think I, I would put it in the top. 50. So here, here's my thing with with comedy in general. Uh, it's very hard to write up comedy it's very hard to like this is literally a joke that only works if you see it like if you wrote an explanation of this joke everyone would be like i don't get like why is that funny it only works if you're watching the movie and i feel like that alone makes it weird to include on this this list Uh, and here's my other caveat if it goes on the list it should be like number 50, right right, right above Hubie Halloween. <laughs> yeah, honorary 51, Hubie Halloween. I mean, uh, to, I, I think to say that it's just barely above Hubie Halloween is an insult to American Pickle as a whole. Um, and even though I do agree that it's hard to write out comedy and impress upon people like why the moment is so good. I mean, it's like the... I don't think that's a reason to discount it because if that were the case, then there's, there's so many jokes that, you know, whether they're visual gags or anything like that, that you wouldn't easily, you know, be able to put on a list just because it's hard to describe and still make it funny. It's, it's the idea of what, what that moment is in the movie when you watch it and why it's a good moment. I moved it to in discussion for now. We need to keep moving through this list. Uh, we have two moments from Bad Education here. Hugh Jackman freaks out the parent, which is a big climactic sequence in the movie, more or less. And Hugh Jackman fires the assistant superintendent in Bad Education, which is where he fires Alice and Janney. And it's a very, in, they're both very intense scenes for different reasons. I like Bad, Bad Education a lot. Um, I'm not sure either of these belong in the top 50, but maybe one of them in discussion. Uh, what do we think about either of these scenes? Bad Education is on my top 10, and if I were to pick one of the moments to be in discussion, I think it's the freak out at the parent in Bad Education, because it's a moment that shows that the movie isn't just, you know, reliving this dramatization of a school scandal, which is obviously a huge part of the story, but this takes the... I think the thematic elements of this movie to another level and shows that there's something deeper here than just a bunch of people, you know, wanting to be, to be rich and to steal money from taxpayers. HG, I heard you about to speak. Yeah. I was about to say, you know, my, my favorite moments from bad education, um, actually aren't either of these. I think it, it's been a while since I've seen it. I watched it like at the beginning of, of 2020, but it's the moments that are where, uh, I think at the end when, uh, Hugh Jackman's character is basically like, uh, like cutting his losses and saying, I actually did want to help the kids. And I, I really like that moment a lot. I think the big intense moments are really good in bad education, but it wouldn't be personally what I would choose for the best moments of that movie. All right. Uh, Chris and Ben, do you have any big opinions on bad education? <sighs> no, no, I, I like the movie a lot, but I, I, I really have no big opinions on, on these scenes one way or another. I like the movie and think neither of these moments should be on the list. Looking at all the, the stuff that we still haven't even touched on yet, I think there's no way that these moments, even if we were to move them into discussion now, I feel like we would just be delaying the inevitable. I don't think there's any chance anything from Bad Education ends up on this list. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I, I'll just go fuck myself. <laughs> right. You know that's true. Look at the what you have to talk here. about. No, no, no. I, I, do, I do understand. It's, it's I mean, if there's so many moments moments here it's top it's 50 i'm biased because it's one of my favorite movies of the year but i i i don't want to you know draw this out into a huge thing all right i'm gonna cut both these moments with the caveat that they're tied with Kubi halloween for 51 <laughs> now this just makes me more mad <laughs> okay uh we have two moments from bill and ted face music on this list uh the final concert where uh where we learn that 
it's not Bill and Ted writing the song. It's the entire world working together to avert Armageddon. It, essentially the ending of, of One Woman Nineteen Eighty Four, The Wishes, but done better in a Bill and Ted movie. Uh, and also, I could not pick just one, so I just put Dennis Caleb McCoy in Bill and Ted Face Music, the absolutely incredible android character, the killer robot character played by Anthony Kerrigan. I'm actually happy with either of these being moved in discussion, but I want to hear from you guys. I, oh my God, I love both of these and especially every, every moment with Dennis because he was a scene stealer for, um, for Bill and Ted Face the Music. But I think that the final concert scene in Bill and Ted uh, really for me encapsulated a lot of what 2020 was about. And I feel like because of that, because it was sort of that unifying um, scene that again was sort of repeated in Wonder Woman 1984, but to better effect and was so hopeful and joyful and really elevated a lot of the film for me. Um, I think that it deserves to be in the top 50 because of just what, how it almost accidentally came to define the year for me. Uh, should I say something? I yeah, every, every time there's like a dead silence, it's like, what happens now on this show? <laughs> but uh, Bill and Ted face music, very nice movie. But I don't, this is going to make everyone angry, but I don't think it's a good movie. And I'm sorry, everyone. I think it's a very nice movie. It made me feel very uh, uplifted. But the movie is is really like cheap looking. And it, that really bothers me a little bit. As much as I love uh, that character, and as much as I love that the, the movie's uplifting ending message, I feel like this movie looks like it was shot on a like on a weekend in front of green screens and it it just rubs me the wrong way so sorry everyone all right it sounds to me like we should i want to put both these into in discussion i think moving them into discussion will make cutting them later feel nicer and easier <laughs> if we have to cut them so it's no easier. god damn it let's be me let's start cutting everything right now i'll cut it right now the Jacob, do it come on Coronavirus twist in Borat's subsequent movie film. We have Borat film on the list. Borat scene on the list. We do not need the worst joke in the movie on this I list. I don't think that's the worst joke in the movie at, at all. The the Tom Hanks cameo alone makes it good. I don't I I don't disagree that we we can cut it because we're already considering two other Borat moments. But I'm the one that added to this list, and I think it's a very funny bit. So there. Okay, you okay, tied with fifty one with Hoobie Halloween. <laughs> you are going to ruin everything I love by linking it to Hoobie Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm cutting it. All right, here's a, a movie that I adore. Barely missed my top ten. Had anybody else here seen Come to Daddy? I have. It was on my my best horror list of the year. All right, uh, I'm th- I, I've nominated two scenes: the kitchen battle to the death, uh, and Norval looks through the photo album and finds a trap door. Uh, this is a movie where Elijah Wood plays a eccentric hipster kid who goes and meets his estranged father for the first time in this isolated cabin in the wilderness, or this isolated like lodge in the wilderness and things go very badly uh, for everybody involved. And my whole thing is if we're not going to seriously consider coming to daddy on this list, I don't want to spoil anything because I don't want, it's just, it's just too good. The twists are too weird and wild. Chris, do you think that these moments deserve to be talked about for the list? Or think we should gracefully let them go here? Uh, Man, Uh, this movie is so good, but uh, looking at like the rest of this list, I would say maybe, Oh man, I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, let's cut him. Let's cut him. I'm going to be right. brutal. Let's cut him. Right. Chris, I'm holding your hand. I'm off this cliff, okay? All right. All right. I am, however, going to go to bat. I'm going to. This is what I'll stump for. 
uh, Rose Loses Her Virginity and Extraordinary. Extraordinary is this really gentle Irish rom-com about a woman who can, who can talk to ghosts. And uh, the, and she gets involved in a supernatural conspiracy involving a uh, wealthy American who's trying to open a portal to hell uh, as part of a demonic ritual. And it's a really sweet, nice movie where she falls in love with this really gentle local guy. Who and they go on this uh, adventure where they have to talk to ghosts and try to save his teenage daughter from being sacrificed in the demonic plot. And I'm going to spoil the ending here because this is the ending. The grand climax is the Will Forte playing the evil American villain tosses his daughter, tosses the uh, love interest daughter into a satanic pit to hell because he needs a virgin to complete a sacrifice. And the pit spits it back up, and a giant demon emerges from it and says that she wasn't a, she, she wasn't a virgin. And looks straight at Rose, our middle-aged main character, declares that she's a virgin and tries to pull her into the pit to hell. So her love interest, this really sweet guy, to save her life, leaps onto her. And while they're both being dragged to a pit in hell, are desperately trying to have sex so she, can't, so she won't be a virgin to avoid her being damned to hell and complete a satanic ritual. It is one of the funniest, craziest things I saw in a movie that came out last year. Extraordinary is my stumping, like the one I'll stump for as a moment... That's too crazy and too good to be ignored. I haven't seen this, but it sounds right up my alley, so I support you. Uh, same. Oh, I I I love the way you describe this moment, but I hadn't heard of this movie up until the moment I saw it on the <laughs> list. So I don't know if I can, in good conscience, uh, support it to be on our top fifty list because it's just it's just too much of an under the radar movie even though it sounds oh, so crazy it to be popular now to be considered the best <laughs> <H-T>. <laughs> all right fine whatever i don't care anymore i'm gonna put it in, in discussion maybe i'll be talked out of it but extraordinary it played itself by southwest two years ago it finally got released last year that's why it's under the radar it is wild and really sweet and the only time i can think of a of a desperate rush to have sex while being sucked toward a satanic portal being a plot point in the climax of a movie so um <laughs> I'll keep it on the dock for now. All right, guys. Host. I have two moments from host on this list. The Snapchat filter reveals a demon. That's a scene where we see an empty corner of a room and uh, a weird like animal face, I believe it is, or, or a weird like cartoon face appears on nothing, suggesting that the, 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 the program is trying to put like a cute little animated face on something that's not there. And Caroline's Death, which is a character who has her background being a running gif of herself. And we see her oh, vanish man. behind it, and then she smashes her face repeatedly into a keyboard and vanishes again behind her own gif. I, I would, think, yeah, go ahead, Chris. Uh, first of all, thank you for saying gif and not jif because man, that drives me crazy. And second of all, uh, I would go with that second one because I actually had forgotten about it until you just mentioned it, and now it's like I'm just remembering how great. How great that that running buildup is to that, where you see it early in the movie. Her show, she shows everyone that gif, and then later in the movie, they forget about it for a moment. They're like, "Oh, she's fine," and it's like then they remember, "Oh, it's that gif," and then there's the jump scare. So I would vote for that if I had to, if I was picking one of them. Host belongs on this list. Host is in the top fifty. There's no horror film better summed up 2020 than the one shot on Zoom. So I implore all of you. Which post moment do we lock in? Because I think one should be locked in here. I was actually leaning towards the first one because I love the way that it uses that the technology, which could be really gimmicky uh, in, in any other movie and becomes such a central conceit of this film and becomes part of the horror. Um, but I do think that I like Chris's uh, argument for the latter. And I so I, I'm going to go with whoever, whichever gets more support. <laughs> 
Uh, ben, uh, Brad, any opinions on this? I've been severely slacking in horror this year, and I haven't seen Host yet. I still have not seen it either. But I know that you guys love it. And and, uh, and we're on the Blu-ray special features. I know. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, yeah, I think that second moment sounds more interesting to me, just as an outsider looking in with zero context. But um, so I don't know how, how much weight that carries, but that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, I, I, my initial thought was that the the weird, the, the, the snapshot, the, chap, the Snapchat adjacent program desperately trying to add an animated face to a being that's not there letting you know that you're not alone in this, empty, this seemingly empty room is is an image that stuck with me uh but i think caroline's death sums up host and it, it's always a visceral scares and use of technology probably more efficiently so let's put caroline's death and host into the top 50 and delete the other one yeah all right okay it's time for hunter hunter a movie uh, uh, Ben, Brad, and I have watched, and Chris have all seen now. Uh, HC, you worked up with the end of Hunter Hunter here. I- I'm sorry. Um, oh, it's okay. I was curious after all you guys are talking about it, and I've just been, I don't know, not really wanting to, being, I've just been very squeamish lately, so I just read the Wikipedia synopsis to find out what it was, <laughs> so I know what happened. Uh, ben, do you want to briefly sum up the ending of Hunter Hunter? Uh, sure. So Hunter Hunter is this, as you mentioned, the story of a basically a family out in the woods. Um, uh, Devin Sawa plays the patriarch and he is trying to hunt this wolf that's been terrorizing the family. He goes off to, to do that and leaves the wife and daughter sort of alone in this ca- isolated cabin. And Nick Stahl plays a character who uh, is injured in the woods and he uh, is like brought in and, and sort of nursed back to health by the uh, female members of this family. And then you slowly realize that he is the one who had something to do with the death of Devon Sawa's character. That's like a very late stage reveal. And then uh, the, the uh, mother played by Camille Sullivan goes, uh, she like goes out, discovers the husband's body and realizes that her young daughter is now back in this cabin by herself with this maniac killer. So she goes back and basically gets knocked out. There's a whole fight scene and she discovers that, uh, Nick Stahl has, has murdered the daughter. I think, I mean, it's, it's like off screen. You don't know exactly the extent of what heinous shit he did to this very young girl. And so she, having just lost her husband and now her very young daughter, uh, there's this really horrifying moment where all emotion drops off of her face and she utilizes the techniques of skinning animals that she learned from her daughter earlier in the movie and uh, basically strings up Nick Stahl's character and skins him alive. And in one, you know, completely gruesome, brutal finishing touch, rips his face off of his body and carries it out of the front door in her hand as the police show up. And she, uh, yeah, just sort of sits there covered in blood. And uh, the the camera at one point moves back onto this uh, nerve body of, of Nick Stahl, who's still tied up and is just this dripping mass of blood who is completely skinless and totally alive. And one of his eyes is exposed. His eyeballs is exposed, but there's no skin there. It is one of the most gruesome, like uh, horrific images in a movie that I've seen in a long, long time. And it's going to take a long time for me to get that out of my head. A few years ago, we put the ending of Gerald's game on this list where the main character is forced to uh, de-glove, a.k.a. cut the skin off her own hand to escape a bad situation. This scene has been a go-to scene in my household for the most upsetting film scene of all time. My wife 
choking back vomit while watching the scene in Hunter Hunter turned to me and yelled, they Gerald's gamed his whole body. I think yes. Hunter Hunter belongs in the top 50, but I want to hear from everybody else. I mean, I think it, it does too, just because it, it was so shocking and so uh, extreme. And um, I, I don't know. I, I, I have not, I did not experience a moment like that in any other movie in 2020. And I know that's a, a high bar, but um, I don't know, Chris, Brad, what do you guys think? I, I think Possessor comes close to being ju- just about as grotesque as what happens. But yes, this is a truly shocking uh, turn of events in a movie that was um, not super gruesome leading up to this point and really just goes full tilt in the last five minutes. And I think that is so shocking and so grotesque and gory that it, it should be on the top 50. Uh, Chris, what do you think? I've, I know you like this movie. And I argue this is a case where... There's a the movie itself is good, but the moment is great, and I, that's kind of why I want to champion it because it's a moment that, you know, stands around, stands out in a movie that I think otherwise wouldn't get enough talk about it. Uh, so, Chris, I want to. What do you think here? I mean, yeah, without this scene, I would even argue the movie isn't even that good. So, uh, I I think the scene belongs on the list, especially because. I like the idea of championing, championing. Well, I can't, I can't talk today. You know what I'm trying to say? A movie, <laughs> a movie that a lot of people don't really know about. Like this movie came out at the very end of the year, like the last week of 2020. And I really don't think a lot of people know what this is. So I like the idea of, of turning people onto this film. Although at the same time, we're also giving away the ending. So maybe that's not the, the best idea, but I, I'm, I'm fine with it being on the list. All right, cool. Uh, speaking of skinless people, uh, Impetigor, the <laughs> Indonesian horror movie, that's really, really good. Uh, I, 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 there's two scenes on our list here. The skinless man in Impetigor, which instead of a person actually having their skin removed, is a result of a curse that has people has babies born without skin. This is one of the few survivors who grow to adulthood. But also the opening attack scene where a woman working uh, oh God, uh, at a toll booth in uh, Indonesian city is attacked by a man with machete. And it's one of the most intense scenes <laughs> in any horror movie this year. Uh, Chris, you've seen in Pedagore. Do either of these scenes belong on the list? Maybe. I mean, the opening attack is is really friggin' good. I mean, uh, if I had to pick between the two, that's the one I would pick. So that's, yeah. That's where I'm leaning to. Is anyone else here seen in Pedagore? Oh, man. Okay, it's... I'm going to cut the skinless man. We already have one skinless man in our top 50. <laughs> That's Nick Stahl and Hunter Hunter. Let's move opening attack into in discussion for now, Chris, because I, I don't want to cut it yet, but we'll, let's keep this moving. I'm going to hand the floor over to Chris, HT, and Ben for this one. This is, I'm thinking of ending things. We have two moments, the poem and the dinner. And all three of you put this film on your top 10. So one of you guys, uh, the poem or the dinner, what are these scenes? Chris, you want to talk about the poem? I feel like you put this on there, right? I did. There's this scene. Uh, there's this scene. Obviously, there's this scene. That's what we're talking about. There's a there's a part in in uh, thinking about any things um, where the, the the two main characters there's Jesse Buckley who's, who's uh, the narrator and uh, Jesse Plemons who's her boyfriend and they're driving to visit Jesse Plemons' parents and they're in the middle of the snowstorm as they drive and. Um, the character by Jesse Plemons, um, she, she, she is a lot of things. There's like a running joke in the film where they keep talking about all the things she is, where she's like an astronomer and she's a poet and she's, you know, all the, and so, uh, she starts reciting this very 
long poem, which is a real poem um, by Eva HD is the poet uh, who was a friend of Charlie Kaufman who, who wrote and directed the film. And this, this isn't in the book. I'm thinking of anything. It was just used for the movie. And it's just this really incredible haunting poem. Uh, and, you know, the idea of someone read it just in a movie, reading a poem, it's like, ah, oh, that could be boring. That could backfire terribly, but the way it's shot and the way that Jesse Buckley reads it and just the emotion in the scene and how ominous it sort of seems, even though it's literally just two people in a car. And just, I just love the way it plays out. And that was, it's like the scene that made me like fall in love with the movie as I was watching it the first time. And then everything after that just solidified that love. So that would be my pick between the two. Man, it's such a beautiful moment. And like, I don't read poetry. That's one of my maybe flaws as a, as a consumer of art. But uh, hearing this poem, I was like, should I get into poetry? Is this what poetry is? Because it was so, so gorgeous. So um, I put the moment, uh, the dinner scene on there, which is like after they arrive at the, the farmstead or whatever, uh, David Thewlis and Tony Collette play Jesse Plemons's parents and they all have this really awkward really weird dinner scene where uh the the uh, uh the mother the matriarch figure <laughs> consistently confuses the word uh genus and genius and uh David Thewlis uh, they, they get into this big uh argument basically this big sort of back and forth about um the idea of art and like if there's not a physically a person in a painting how am I supposed to understand the perspective of the painting or like put myself into that idea. And just like the ideas that are, that are explored as this dinner scene unfolds. Um, I, I thought was, were really interesting. And there's also the super weird unsettling feeling that, that sort of hovers over the whole thing. Um, I mean, it really hovers over the entire time they're at the, uh, that farmhouse, but that dinner scene is sort of like, to me, the height of, uh, of all of these characters and their bizarre dynamics sort of melding and, and coming together. Um, HG, wh- which of these two scenes do you uh, resonated more with you? I lean towards the dinner scene because it's sort of the central set piece of the movie. It's where things, I mean, beforehand you had started to have that reality start to chip and to um, become more fluid because we'd seen uh, the narrator played by Jesse Buckley uh, be referred to as by so many names and by so many different things. And, but I think that the dinner scene makes it much more apparent on the surface that there's just this entire thing, this entire reality is something that's ever shifting. And it's the performances by, uh, by uh, Tony Collette and David Thewlis, which is so manic and, sad and scary and uh just all over the place is is really incredible to watch like it's a great showcase for all of them but i think that the way that it changes and like the conversations that they have and um the way that every like the the conversation shifts both naturally and uh unnaturally is just so mesmerizing and weird and a little and ominous to watch but i do think i will say about the poet poem, the, the poem scene I what I really like about that scene is that it kind of speaks to sort of the emptiness within the character. The poem itself uh, is a really beautiful poem that really feels like it captures the themes of the of the movie, even though it's not really it wasn't something that was written for the movie. Um, and I feel like it it sort of touches on this, some of the deeper themes of the film itself. But 
I think as a set piece, I will say that the dinner scene just like is so good and it's so like unsettling to watch in a way that's really compelling. Here's my suggestion so we can keep moving, keep us going. How do we put both these in the discussion? I think one of these will make the list. I think one of them will in the, in the end. Uh, but we, it sounds like we're a little split on which scene. So how about we put them both in the discussion under the promise that one of them will make the list and we keep moving for now. I'm I'm fine with making it the dinner scene. Let's just do that. I'm trying I'm trying to be magnanimous here. Let's just make it the dinner scene. All right, uh, Brad. No 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 objection to this. Uh, I have not seen the movie. This is one that I missed and didn't get a chance to catch, so I won't have any opinion. I'm going to put it on the top 50. It made our top 10 of the year, the overall site list, which goes live soon. <laughs> um, and it made three of our top 10, so I, I really think it belongs here. All right. Uh, we have another Invisible Man scene here, fighting back with a pen. This is near the very end where Elizabeth Moss's character has smuggled a pen into her hospital room, and she fights back. It's a really intense scene. But we already have a great Invisible Man scene on our list. I think we can cut this one. Yeah, yeah. let's cut it. Agreed. All right. A movie that I forgot came out this uh, last year, uh, but... One that I will never see again because it upset me to my core. Uh, the Lodge. Uh, Chris has quoted all of the trailers for this, so I'm so Chris left thing to say. I have I have three moments here: the final shot, lost in the snow, and the opening suicide. Uh, Chris, I think you, you, I think you will like this more than me, even though I respected it a whole bunch. I just found it it got under my skin in a very specific way, and in a, in a weird way, I don't want to champion it because because I found it upsetting in ways that really really. <laughs> left me feeling hurt and damaged uh, but I'd like to hear if, if you think anything The Lodge belongs on this list I love The Lodge I am fine with cutting all three of these scenes even though I again I think the movie is fantastic I also know the movie is not for everyone so that's fine goodbye The Lodge alright chopping it uh, HT the courtroom observe and report moment in Mangrove can you tell us about this I actually didn't put this moment I think oh you didn't no. I assumed yeah. I made an assumption based on reading all your top 10 lists <laughs> I put this moment. It's uh, during the the uh, lengthy courtroom scene in the first entry of Steve McQueen's Small Axe series. Uh, there's this moment where um, the black defendants are defending themselves, uh, and and they're in the Old Bailey, and uh, there's this you know tensions are high, and basically these uh, people who are not trained in the ways of the law figure out a way to um, to essentially back the a corrupt and racist policeman into a corner by using his own words against him and uh, doing this really cool like visualization of, okay, so you're supposed to be in a squad car observing and reporting and, and, you know, doing reconnaissance on a, uh, a protest. And the only way that you can uh, see out of this vehicle is through this tiny little horizontal strip. And the uh, officer is arguing that like, I think all three of the people were able to see certain things. And so they basically like held, hold up a visual representation of this tiny strip and say, you're, you're telling me that three people were able to look out of a hole that was this big. And it just sort of brings everything to a halt and and makes the police officer sort of stop and stumble in his tracks. And it's, it's this big victory moment for, um, for sort of uncovering the uh, biases and, and the racist acts that are, uh, that were going on in this movie and, and sort of led to uh, this whole trial sequence in the first place. So I just thought it was a really great moment. I, I don't know if it, I mean, I put it on here and I don't know if I'm willing to like go to bat for it over all of these other things. I just wanted to talk about it for a minute because I thought it was like the standout moment to me in Mangrove, which is really great and worth watching, but I'd be okay if we skip it. Cause I know there's so much other stuff we have to talk about today. It's really good. 
we have in our in our discussion uh trial of the chicago seven which is a movie that i increasingly am lukewarm on and it sounds like that but a little more honest and, and mangrove is the movie that trial of the chicago seven wants to be i'm just gonna say that HT <laughs> should this moment be on the list since Ben seems to be backing off. I'm, this moment I'm is really, really good. And Letitia Wright is kind of the central figure of this. And she is just so fiery and oh, really, really powerful. Like she's the one who basically kept backs the, the policeman into the corner. And um, it's just such a, a real satisfying, real triumphant moment. Um, I I would say yes. Because if Child of Chicago 7 is in contention, I think that this should be at least in contention two or above it. Yeah, I'm going to put it in discussion. I'm not prepared for this one to be cut yet. All right, we have three moments from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, two of which are Chadwick Boseman monologues. Uh, Levy's backstory, where he explains his whole story and why he speaks the way he speaks to white people. Uh, this is He's, a, he's a, a, tr- a trumpeteer, a musician in 1930s United States. Uh, and it's also uh, Levy Challenges God, which is from the end of the film, where he attacks one's bandmates and such he challenges God to defend him if if, God, if 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 his God is real. Both really intense, incredible performances from, from Chadwick Boseman. Uh the third scene here, uh take seven and the technical failure, is when they're trying to record the song, um long story short, they have a spoken word part that Ma Rainey, played by Viola Davis, insists her favorite a family member of hers with a stutter perform it. And they try and try and try again and keep on failing. They finally nail it and get their song recorded and it's a moment of like bliss and harmony in a, in a movie that's otherwise full of people Aisha's throats constantly only from the realize that there was a technical failure and the song did not record and it goes into chaos again i like marlene's black bottom i think one of these scenes should be on the movie i'm sorry one of these scenes should be on the list the question is do we take is it take seven which is a big ensemble mood scene or one of the chadwick boseman scenes which is a, a reminder of the talent we lost in a pretty sniffing way brad this was in your top 10 of the year i want to hear your thoughts uh, if we're only going to choose one, I think it has to be uh, Levy's backstory in My Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, I think both of Chadwick Boseman's uh, monologues in this movie are uh, extremely powerful and show just what an incredible actor he is. But I think his backstory is the more powerful of the two because uh, when he challenges God, there's a lot of um, anger and resentment there. But in I think Boseman's monologue in when he's giving his backstory shows... Uh, a little bit more range and there's this build to his uh, trauma and frustration and sadness um, as he remembers this and tells the story to uh, his um, bandmates. And it's just, uh, yeah, an, an incredible, incredible sequence um, and a powerful moment of acting. So if we're going to choose one, uh, I think that should be the one. Chris, you were a little more lukewarm on this film compared to me and Brad, but do you think that Chuck Boseman's performance alone should seal one of these on the list? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the movie is poorly directed, but it's got such great performances, especially Chadwick Boseman, that I, I certainly wouldn't object to one of his scenes being on air. Itchy uh, and Ben, I can't remember if you saw this yet. Do you have any, any comments? I haven't seen it yet, but I do think we should have a Chadwick Boseman moment on here because uh, we only have one from Defy Bloods, and I think he also is revelatory in Defy Bloods despite his small appearance. So I'm, I support it. I did see it, and I think uh, Levy's backstory is is the moment of the movie. So yeah, I, I agree that should be the one. All right, I'll cut the other two, and we'll lock in Levy's backstory. Look at us making progress, guys. Look at us—we're we're, we're powering through this list today. Uh, <laughs> Okay, I'm going to cut this next one. This is the babysitter segment in the Mortuary Collection. This is a 
a really hit and miss horror anthology with one outstanding segment, the Mortuary Collection. Oh, sorry, the Babysitter Killers, I think is the name of the segment in the Mortuary Collection. It's, like, it's the second to last one. It's outstanding. It's one of the great like anthology segments I think I've ever seen. It's a blast. It, it, it's so fun and exciting and, and plays with expectations in such a fun way. However, the reason I'm cutting it is that the, the Babysitter segment in the Mortuary Collection was a short film made by the same director a few years earlier. Then he got funding to make an entire movie and he slipped a short film into it as one of the segments. And none of the new stuff in the rest of the movie is half as good as the Babysitter segment, which means that it's not—it's a short film made years earlier, and he couldn't even match that in his feature film. So I, as great as it is, I have to cut it. Uh, Chris, you saw this in the same theater as me. Thoughts on Mortuary Collection and this scene? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty hit or miss on this movie, uh, but this, this scene is good. But uh, yeah, uh, for all the reasons you just said, I am fine with cutting it. All right. Uh, Carrie Coon dances in the nest. Who put? I think it's Chris. Did you put this on here? I didn't put this on here, but you I asked oh. the nest. Who I put it on here? Oh, Ben. Okay, tell us about Carrie Coon dancing in the nest. Uh, Carrie Coon is fantastic in the nest. So the nest is uh, from Sean Durkin, who made Marthy, uh, Mar- Martha Marcy May Marlene. God, what a, a tough title that was. Uh, this is like the, his first movie in many, many years. And it stars Jude Law and Carrie Coon as this couple. And uh, there is, it takes place in the 1980s. Jude Law is like a businessman who uh, moves his family to uh, the UK to try to, you know, basically take advantage of business opportunities. And it turns out that he is just this uh, compulsive liar who is constantly trying to build himself up. And, and he's always uh, essentially just saying like, you know, the next deal is going to come through one of these days. And he sort of like lies his way forward and, and up into the, into his uh, like power in his industry and uh, things eventually start to fall apart for him. And the marriage between the, the two central characters Uh, comes to a head this night at a dinner party where he essentially convinces his wife to to get all dressed up and they go out and they're supposed to be impressing you know these fancy people or whatever and he is just constantly lying about all the stuff that he has or all the places that they're going to go or whatever and she just eventually i mean she knows the truth about what's going on at this point she's figured out his financial situation and just sort of laughs in his face and just emasculates him in front of all of these potential business people that he's supposed to be you know his colleagues and she just abandons him she just leaves the this fancy uh dinner place this fancy restaurant and just goes into a club and just starts drinking and just dances by herself in the middle of the dance floor like you know there's a big crowd there but she's just completely by herself and just you know throws caution to the wind and just says fuck it i'm gonna do this for me basically i mean she doesn't say it but that's that's the the general vibe of the moment and the shot of Carrie Coon just dancing and just, you know, she's a woman with responsibilities and she has a family and she has all these things that all this, you know, pressure on her shoulders. But for this one moment, she just says, I, I can't deal with this stuff anymore. I have to just have a moment for myself. And uh, it, it's like my favorite moment of this movie, which I'm guessing a lot of people haven't seen. Um, and again, this is not one that I think is like, this has to be on the top 50, but I think uh, it, it was a moment that stood out to me in the movies of 2020. So I'd be interested if anybody else here saw it, if you guys also uh, sort of how you feel about it. I haven't seen it, but I heard good things, especially about Carrie Coon's performance. And I will just say I'm, I would be happy to have Carrie Coon on our list at all. So I think the best solution here, since I think the only one who saw the nest, Ben, is for us to put it in discussion and for us to, see if it slips in you know in one of those slots because i i think it has a, a shot here but i think like extraordinary with me it's gonna be it, we, we should like wait and see 
Yeah, totally cool. Okay. All right, I think this one was a Chris submission. <laughs> Tom Hanks inspires an uprising in News of the World. Was this you, Chris? No, it was not. <laughs> I keep on getting this wrong. Keep it on, was okay. me. Okay, all right. One of these days, I want to get this right. It's like my fifth time making a guess based on your damn tastes because I read everything you write on the website. Brad, tell us about Tom Hanks inspiring an uprising in News of the World. Uh, so in News of the World, Tom Hanks plays this guy whose job is uh, going across the country um, and delivering news to small towns, reading newspapers to them in these uh, assembly meetings. and people it's like the Wild West, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a wild, wild west setting, and so these people come to the uh, a, a building in the middle of their town. They drop a, a quarter or what have you in a, in a, a tin can, and Tom Hanks reads them stories uh, from different towns from uh, across the country, so that they can hear what what's happening outside of their own towns. Uh, and when he stops in in one town, he encounters um, this sort of radical militia that has taken over the town and is trying to uh, basically get rid of any quote unquote, you know, uh, outsiders, you know, foreigners from their town and they're treating them uh, like slaves and basically degrading them and uh, have really just turned into basically the worst version of Trump supporters. Um, And the person who is leading this militia asks Tom Hanks to uh, read something that has been approved by the town's leader. But instead, he just chooses to read um, to these people a story about a group of coal miners who have fought back against somebody who was basically their overlord uh, and commanding them and abusing them and talks about how they rose up and fought back and were able to save themselves. And because of this, it inspires the people to stand up for themselves and create civil unrest and overthrow uh, this, you know, these terrible people who are oppressing the people in this town. Uh, and it's uh, really a moment that I think is just so perfect for uh, this year. You know, the, um, we've seen so many instances of just misinformation and people being oppressed and uh, fought, fought against and all this, you know, just all this nonsense. Um, and I think, you know, seeing a story like this and seeing it in the context of a completely different time, you know, and seeing that stuff like this, uh, you know, isn't unique to our time time period it's stuff that's been happening for forever even the the fact that this this isn't based necessarily on a true story but these are things that happened uh, you know all throughout history um and i think it's just uh you know a, a powerful scene and it's a it's a great moment for for tom hanks and yeah that's that's that scene yeah, i'm cool with this going in discussion for now i'm not sure if it's top 50 for me just yet but i'm cool with it being uh boosted up to be a potential fill-in uh thoughts from the rest of the team uh, I like this moment a lot. I think, yeah, considering all the other stuff that we still haven't talked about yet, I think it belongs in discussion for now. All right, I'm putting it there. Right, we only have we only have one scene from Nomadland locked in top fifty. We have two more nominated: uh, the campfire chats in Nomadland and see you down the road in Nomadland. So here's my question for the group: knowing that Nomadland is locked in for sure, has a moment on, in, in top fifty. Do we want to spend time discussing this, or do you want to sort of begrudgingly? except that we'll probably only have one Nomadland scene on the list. So I added both of these moments, and they actually are somewhat similar uh, in their beats. Uh, the Campfire Chats is refers to the scene in which Fern, um, Francis McDormand's character, sits down with the fellow nomads at one of the camps, and they start talking about the reasons that led them there. And uh, it becomes sort of like this pseudo AA meeting where they're talking about the things that they lost and the people that they lost or for one example, one of the characters um, who uh, Fern befriends is uh, on this road trip because she's uh, she has cancer and she doesn't want to spend her last days uh, dying in a hospital. 
Um, but See You Down the Road takes place uh, with later in the film, like almost towards the end, uh, where um, the nomadic guru, Bob Wells, who plays himself, uh, tells Fern that, um, and this is in the aftermath of the death of one of the characters in the campfire chat from the beginning, tells her that he never says um, goodbye to his fellow nomads. He only says, see you down the road. And I thought that that line in particular really just encapsulates what makes Nomadland so beautiful. It's only about going, it's never about like that loss and like staying in that loss, but just kind of going forward and keeping it with you, holding it tight, but forging forward uh, because of or in spite of it. So I'm down with cutting the campfire chats because it's, it's somewhat similar, but I will say I think See You Down the Road is a really powerful uh, moment. Uh, is anyone else who watched Nomadland? I think it was Chris and Ben? Brad. And Brad. Does anyone else remember this moment in particular and did it speak to uh, either of you? Yes, and I fully agree with you. Um, they, they do have share similar things in, in spirit, but I... Um, I was definitely uh, hit, you know, really hard by that the see you down the road uh, moment, and just how you know they're they're all saying goodbye to this person around around the fire, and yeah, it's uh, if if we're gonna have a second moment, it would be that one. So how about see you down the road gets put in discussion, and we cut campfire chats. I'm fine with that. Okay. Uh, all right, it's time for the uh, redhead stepchild Pixar movie of 2020 onward. Uh, this is one I put it I put in here. Uh, one last conversation with dad. In the film, where after the entire ordeal of them trying to resurrect their father, these fantasy characters in this you know sort of mundane modern fantasy world, they finally get a few minutes with their resurrected father, and uh, the younger son realizes that, that this moment belongs to the older son, who actually knew his father and actually has things to say, and unlike him, who didn't know him, and he watches from afar as his older brother uh, gets one last moment with his father before he fades away, you know, uh, forever, and. Onward is really hit and miss. I think I like it more than most people on this podcast about the restraint here, the restraint of the scene and the understanding of the, the brotherly love here, not just like the love of a, of, a, of a son for a father, but understanding how much the older brother needs this. And it really is the kids to hit me right in the feels. Uh, if no one else likes this moment, we can cut it. But I, I kind of feel like it should at least be in discussion because in a movie that, doesn't quite add up the way as much as show like onward. I think it's a really powerful moment that makes the whole thing feel worth it. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think I like onward a little bit more than, than most as well. And I think that um, even if the, the, the movie overall doesn't quite deliver as hard as, you know, some of Pixar's best, uh, you know, tear jerking heart, um, heart pulling moments that this is one that works really, really well. And it definitely makes, you know, um, it elevates the movie overall. I think this is the best moment of Onward, but I just, I really dislike Chris Pratt in this movie. <laughs> I think he's horribly cast, and I think that he's doing his best Jack Black and failing at it. And I just, you can't I can't hear his voice in the scene, though, so he's not in the scene, HD. I know. I just, and I've told, and I have to admit, I forgot until we got to this moment that Onward came out last year, and I was like, oh, yeah, that happened. Um, it is a powerful scene, and I do like how personal it is to uh the animators but i'd i'd be fine with cutting onward completely i'm not prepared to cut it i'm putting it in a discussion it may cut later <laughs> but it's gonna be 51 title will be halloween We're splashing and burning jacob <laughs> all right one night miami we have two scenes here i think you put you put it on here right brad 
Uh, yeah, I had to put this one on here, and it kind of goes. It, it's almost the it's basically the predecessor to this the other scene that I I think Ben put that one on here, right? Yes. Yeah. And so the, uh, this scene from One Night in Miami, it's a, a conversation sequence, um, one of many, because the entire movie is basically just a conversation between these, you know, four uh, icons from history. Um, but this one in particular stood out to me. Uh, it's Malcolm X um, basically chastising Sam Cooke, uh, who's this uh, famous, you know, singer for kind of selling out and singing songs that basically white people want to hear him hear, you know, being this kind of lounge singer um you know act rather than using his position uh as a, a musician that people want to listen to to make a statement and he uh references bob dylan and like a song that he's he's done that says so much more than sam cook has ever done with his music and just really like digs into him and they have this you know really tense um and and harsh back and forth with each other arguing about um you know their their place in history and what he should be doing with his uh status as a star and whatnot uh and it was just um it's one of the sequences i think that shows um that uh kingsley belladere should be nominated you know for an award for this uh for this performance um and you know even um and even uh leslie odom jr too because he's also fantastic in this entire movie as sam cook um so yeah that's that's that scene that i thought was was worthy of consideration uh ben what's his other one uh sam cook's final song the final song sort of yeah piggybacks on what brad was saying like there's this big confrontation about how sam cook sort of hadn't done enough in malcolm x's eyes to sort of further the cause and the film ends with him singing uh change gonna come which is like one of his most famous songs and uh it's just a, a really powerful uh moment it sort of feels like the culmination of everything that we've seen before but ultimately even though i put this moment on the list i think the one that that brad put on here is a better representation of the movie itself because it is just about these people sort of hashing out their beliefs and uh, you know, where they stand and what they should be doing. And it, it uh, struck me, especially uh, that back and forth between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke um, as a more relevant and I guess just more interesting overall moment than, uh, than that final song, which is like beautifully performed and, and really well done. And just like, I thought uh, a moment worth discussing out of the 2020 filmography, I guess. But um, yeah, I think especially the way that Sam Cooke comes back at Malcolm X and says like, I may not be overtly doing stuff, but I set up a, rep a record company and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing like behind the scenes things. And it's, it's about like the different ways that people contribute. And sometimes it's not uh, as flashy and visible, but people are still sort of, um, you know, helping in, in whatever way that they can. I thought it, it raises conversations about like, how how much is is enough and and you know like what you know uh, should should every single creative act you uh, one does be in the service of pushing this forward or is there a place for uh, a different type of creativity that doesn't necessarily speak to um you know larger necessary systemic changes can can you uh, feel okay as a performer about doing other things it, it just raises all these interesting questions that i sort of like left my head spinning as the movie was ending so i think that first moment is really if we're going to put it on the list uh, put, put a moment on the list that should be the one i think one night miami needs a moment on this list and i think that that first one sounds like the scene anybody else see this i did Okay, what'd you think, Chris? Yeah, the, the scene is great, so I don't have any uh, objections. To I that. did too, and I was leaning towards uh, Sam Cooke's fi uh, final song, but I, Ben, you're you have so much passion for that scene, and so I I'm fine with uh, supporting you for this one. All right, cool. From the list, okay, we could do a movie. I think it's been sort of a dark horse for this ever since Ben recommended it a few months ago, 
end up making our site-wide top 10. It's on a few of our individual top 10 lists. Uh, the documentary, The Painter and the Thief, about a artist who connects with, befriends the, the man who stole her art from a gallery and, and it turns it into this unlikely bond in this really powerful uh, story about these two people who may be soulmates, even if they're not romantic with each other. And I don't want to, I don't know how much I want to say plot-wise, because I, I, this is one of the things I don't want to spoil if we don't, unless we have to, but uh, the final painting reveal, the first painting reveal, and taking first steps are the moments nominated here. And I'll go ahead and cut taking first steps. Those are the objections. A character is severely injured in this film, and we see them in the hospital uh, recovering. And the camera's role as they take their first steps in, in months, and the exhaustion and joy of this moment, it, it's so real and powerful. But the other two moments are more powerful, uh, right, HG and Ben? I think so. Agreed. Okay, so what's more important, more powerful? The early scene where the titular painter shows the thief the painting of him that, she, that she's painted. And this guy, this fascinating broken man, is so moved that someone's taken an interest in him and has to turn him into a work of art, into an idea of beauty. He breaks down and sobs. And it's not a reaction you see in like a scripted movie. It's such a human, raw thing. And, and the level of initial discomfort followed by catharsis of this man realizing that somebody sees beauty in him is so incredibly meaningful. Topped only maybe by the final, final painting where we see another painting that she paints uh, depicting him. I'm just not going to spoil here because I don't, I don't want to. Uh, so HD and Ben, are, I don't have Chris and Brad seen this? I don't know. But which painting reveal belongs on our list? Because I think one of them does. I vote for the first painting reveal because I was so struck by how moved and how like his just raw reaction to seeing the thief seeing his uh his himself as art and something that he has which is something he's never experienced before he is considered you know a, a outcast of society and here being appreciated and being seen as something worth looking at worth being being considered beautiful was just so moving and the fact that he cries for like a full like two minutes and that the, the camera just stays with him doesn't judge him and uh the painter she's like she's so shocked at first but then like comes to have her own emotional reaction at seeing someone have such a reaction to her to her work and that is i think their first real spark of kinship of of um that deep deep connection that they share um, and that they start to see like that that bond within each other, and um, I think that it's it's a really really beautiful moment and one that I think about a lot. Uh, ben, I think you prefer the second one though, right? I do, and I, I think it gets down to the heart of like um, we were talking about this on our Slack channel recently. I'm not a big fan of watching reaction videos, and <laughs> the first painting reveal kind of where he you know, the camera is right there on him and he sees himself in this artwork and reacts in such a huge emotional way. I don't know. There's something about it. Not, like I, I really don't want to say that it's disingenuous because I don't think that's fair, but it was, it was so uncomfortable to me. And the idea that he was doing this in the presence of cameras, there were clearly cameras in the room. It's not like this was a hidden camera scenario. So it's capturing something that's a little bit more uh, authentic. It kind of part of it, like maybe just the enormity of the reaction felt a little bit more like a performance to me, but the final painting reveal is, is like a performance of its, of its own, of a different kind, but like, uh, brazenly. So like it, it's making a statement like there, there's no, um, cringe factor to it in that same way, because it's, 
it knows what it's doing and it, it's like provocative in a whole different way. And it, op- it opens up all these different questions and like it involves, it, it, it like calls into question the, the painter's marriage and like what, you know, it, it just sort of like left me reeling a little bit. And that first moment as emotional and raw as it is, I think it was maybe like too emotional and raw for me to, <laughs> to handle, but um, I, I don't know. I wonder if, if well, any of those things I, resonate with you I guys. I think the two scenes are so, are very like leave the burden of the reaction on two very different people. Like the first one is very much about these two people at the center of this documentary, but the second painting that reveal is more about the audience in a way. I, did that mm-hmm. make sense? It's kind of like, we don't really linger on the reaction that, um, I'm forgetting his name that the the thief has and it just we see it for like a little bit of a second and um but then mm-hmm. it kind of is more about how we are like relating to this painting and having seen this relationship develop over how many years however many years it takes so I understand where you're coming from I think that the fact that his reaction in the first scene takes so long makes it feel even more like genuine to me and mm-hmm. I think that if he were doing it in a performative way, it would be, you know, that big, the big reaction at first, but then it wouldn't go on for so long as it does. And because it does, it just felt to me like that we're, we're really seeing that genuine uh, emotional moment from him. And mm-hmm. um, I do think that when we, when he first, like when we first see that moment of shock on his face, it is really genuine. Like there are cameras around him, but he is really genuinely shocked. So, Maybe I'm less of a cynic than you, Ben. Uh, I just like seeing emotion on people's faces. But uh, I think that the the first scene is, I'm going to sum for that over the, the final scene. I do know that the uh, filmmaker, the director, he was making a short TV documentary about this event, about about um, the long history of European art thieves. And um, it sounds like, well, this will be a fun little segment for, for my TV short documentary. And filmed him breaking down from the painting and said, oh my God, I need to follow these people for years. And he did. So it's a moment that sort of instigates the entire documentary and the reason why he made it. Uh, I don't know, man. I'm all for putting these into discussion for now well, so we can move on. I think we can actually put the the first painting in, onto the list because it's so much more about the relationship between the two characters. And, and it really is sort of like the spark that, that uh, lights the whole rest of their relationship and dynamic as the movie goes on it. Like if you didn't have that first moment, you couldn't have the final painting reveal. Um, and, and I think any representation of the painter and the thief on this list will hopefully drive more people to watch that movie and, and maybe they can judge the final reveal <laughs> as they will. But I, I think we can put that first painting reveal just like straight on the list, unless anybody has any objections to that. Yeah. I know Chris and Brad haven't said a word. Alex, I don't think you guys have seen this movie, right? I, I have actually. Well, you have Chris. what do you think? Uh, I would vote for the first painting scene i honestly i'm i'm a little lukewarm on this movie because i feel like it i feel like that first painting reveal is so powerful and the rest of the movie never reaches those heights so i was actually a little let down by the movie but that scene in particular is i feel like that's the scene of the movie like if you took that scene out of this movie i feel like no one would be talking about the painter and the thief at all I don't particularly enjoy painting or thieves, so <laughs> no, I just I just haven't seen this movie. Uh, it sounds to me like the first painting reveal should be put in the top fifty, while the final painting reveal is tied fifty-one with Hoobie Halloween. <laughs> yes. Wow, we have a lot of movies in our fifty-one slot. <laughs> All right, promising young woman, a movie that, uh, due to um, a, a, an obscenely stupid release plan, I have not seen. So I'll. 
I'll head in the floor off the Brad or Ben or HD. All, all of you have seen it, I think, except me, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I think so, yes. These two scenes are hearing Ryan's voice and the final satisfaction are the two scenes. Which one should we talk about? All right. Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, actually, you, know, you go ahead, oh. Ben, because you put this uh, You you have this film on your list. Uh, I did put this on there, but Chris, were you about to say something? I was going to say, I... I... <laughs> What is what is the final satisfaction? You mean like the end of the movie? Is that what we're it's, talking it's, about? It's the part you hate, Chris. I was gonna say like if oh. it's that, I don't want that on the, Chris, the list. Wow! Oh my gosh, we agree. I mean, I don't hate that moment, but I think it kind of tanks the it's, movie for me. So, uh, I guess because it's okay, we're spoiling things. Basically, uh, Carrie Mulligan's character, uh, she dies. She she's smothered to death by one you know one of the guys she's trying to get revenge on. And then all these series of events happens that seems to indicate like she was like somehow aware that she was going to be smothered to death. And it's like, I think Ben said this, we were talking about others, like she would literally have to be like Heath Ledger's Joker from Mm -hmm. the Dark Knight and able to like pull this all off. And it just, it really ruined the movie for me because I was sort of on board with it until like the last 20 minutes where I feel like it just completely like jumps the shark for lack of a better term, because it, like, I mean, I get that the whole movie exists in this sort of like heightened reality where it's not quite realistic, but the last half of the movie is so over the top unrealistic that I was like, is this like a dream sequence? That's like, I was, I was like, I'm expecting like any moment Carrie Mulligan to like to wake up in bed and be like, Oh, what a crazy dream. <laughs> like that's how like goofy I found the, the last few minutes of this movie. So that I would saw- be my mind. Yeah. So, so it, def- it definitely requires some some leaps in logic, but I think more so than her knowing that she was going to to be you know suffocated or whatever. I think she just made a contingency plan in case she was killed because she's going into the lion's den and she has no idea what's going to happen being in this cabin full of a bunch of debaucherous men. So it was more so of a just in case thing. So I, I'm I'm a little more forgiving, even though the execution of it is kind of unbelievable because I'm not even sure how you would do what, what she right. did and, and time it to be so perfect. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's my problem. Like I, it's not even that I mind that she has a contingency. It's the time, like the, uh, Bo Burnham's character gets like a text at the exact minute the cops show up. It's like, how the fuck would she know the cops are showing up at that exact? It's just, it, it, it's, 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 it's just too much even for me. For me, yeah. the leaps in logic don't actually bother me that much, but I think that by having this final satisfactory reveal um, and that ending, that it walks the movie away from a much more difficult and much more interesting ending that it was starting to head towards in that, you know, she in only in like dying is this sort of justice going to be brought. And maybe that justice won't even be brought about because that's how awful the world is and that's how the world works. And that was the when I thought that was what was going to happen. I started crying because I was like, that is the injustice that this world operates in. And if that's what the movie is going to end on, then that makes it even more powerful and horrifying. And then we have the the ending where she's like, oh, she actually planned all of this. And she was going to like she thought she was going to die anyways, because maybe she's like she like sacrificed herself for like to get her friend justice or whatever. And it felt very 13 reasons why to me too clean. And I didn't I didn't like that. Something we're talking yeah. about right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fine. I mean, it works better for me than it sounds like it did for all of you guys. I think because like there's that moment earlier in the movie where she grabs the tire iron and just like beats the shit out of that guy's car, and you know she she stares down these these guys in the construction site and makes them super uncomfortable and wish that they'd never 
the cat called her. And I feel like the the uh, ending of the movie sort of is in line with the character that we've seen thus far and, and in line with the sort of like almost superhero aspect of, of what we've seen thus far. But I agree that it's not as strong as hearing Ryan's voice, which is the other moment that we have, which is uh, Ryan is uh, played by Bo Burnham, who is her boyfriend throughout the movie. And he seems to be like the one nice guy that she encounters, quote unquote, nice guy, like not not in quotes, like actual nice guy, because the, the whole premise of the movie is that she is essentially like uh, teaching the quote unquote nice guys a lesson about how they're not actually nice and they're dicks and, and should be uh, <laughs> should be afraid of uh, of taking women home and, and trying to take advantage of them in, in terrible situations. But Ryan, this this Bo Burnham character is like has a really great rapport with her and their relationship seems like the one really sweet spot in the movie. And then late in the film, you realize that he was present during the uh, I think it was a sexual assault of her her friend or or the the sexual assault that then led to her friend killing herself is that right uh, you guys have seen the movie yeah. more recently than yeah you. okay yeah. um but just like you hear she, she's watching a, a video of uh of the assault of her friend and it's this horrific moment and then she realizes that ryan was in the room and he's talking and he may have even been holding the camera i don't remember exactly the, the details there but just the fact that he was there and uh and like doesn't yeah, the, it, her world just comes uh, shattering down and, and um, it, it seemed like she was really letting her guard down for a second and like giving herself permission to feel again after being, uh, after having a wall up for so long after her friend's uh, suicide. But now hearing Ryan's voice, I feel like just uh, snaps her back into this, um, you know, like vengeance mentality. And uh, I don't know, I just thought it was a, it was a, a good moment. I agree. I think it's the it's the real shocking moment of the movie and the turning point as well. And I have a, a take that I think that this movie isn't actually the rape revenge movie that it's been marketed as and that it markets itself as, but it's a movie about grief. And the up until this moment, like we're starting to see her coming to terms with her grief over a friend and starting to accept and maybe start to let herself be happy a little bit. And when she hears Ryan's voice, it's not only shattering for her as a one, someone who was starting to uh, become more accepting of, of like the situation and everything, but for, um, for the movie, it's like, it both, it's like a double tiered um, sort of turning point in the, and for, mm-hmm. for her own um, arc and her own sort of, uh, coming in terms of grief, but then going back to vengeance, but also for the film in terms of how it just was become was a film about grief and then turns back into a, a revenge movie. So mm-hmm. I think it, it works uh, doubly on those levels. It's only top 50 to me personally. What do you guys think? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. This next one is one that I put in here just so I can take it off. <laughs> that is uh, random acts of violence. Any of the murder scenes. This is a slasher film directed by and starring Jay Baruchel. And I assumed it would be like a horror comedy because Jay Baruchel. No, he made the nastiest, most unpleasant slasher film I've seen in a long time. Like each murder scene in, in <laughs> random acts of violence is hunter hunter level brutality. And the movie itself is not very good. I do not recommend watching random acts of violence. It is really pretty bad. But their murder scenes are something else. <laughs> they are like uh, Hunter Hunter or like Seven or like just the nastiest, most evil crap imaginable. So I just want to call out Red Max Violence murder scenes for being 
truly deplorable, <laughs> but in, in an effective way, even the movie itself is not especially good. Uh, but a horror movie that is good, a really good horror movie, uh, Relic. Uh, I have two moments from the movie on this list. Lost in the Crawl Space and Laying Grandma to Rest. Relic is a horror movie about uh, Emily Mortimer plays a woman who returns home to uh, take care of her, of her mother who is uh, ailing with dementia and on, the last, on her last day, she brings her daughter with her. And they'll soon learn that they're not alone in the house. It's a haunted house movie, but where the, the demon or the ghost is a manifestation of her mother's own illness. It is a dementia demon, more or less. It's a, it's a, all of her, everything that's destroying her mother has, has become literal in the house. And there is an incredible sequence late in the movie where the entire family gets lost in a crawl space. It's this crawl space that turns into a labyrinth, turns to a maze. And you realize they're, they're literally lost in the mind of the grandmother. It is a. It is her sense of like not knowing, her sense of having lost herself. Uh, it's become a physical place inside the house, and they're inside of it, and they're being chased by something. And it is such an unnerving, terrifying, uh, sad, like deeply uh, 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 sad sequence because you realize that the terror these characters are feeling, the terror of not knowing, of not knowing who they are, where they are, and losing everything. It's what the grandmother is going through on a daily basis. It is a horror movie that's using horror to make very literal the the absolute torment someone with dementia is going through. And naturally, she does the laying grandmother rest. I'm cutting right now because it, it, it comes after that. And it's good, but I think Lost in the Crawl Space is one of the great horror set pieces of 2020. Uh, along, up there with His House and Invisible Man as 2020's great horror movies about something. Uh, Chris, you saw Relic, but I don't think you like it as much as I did, right? Yeah, I feel really weird because everyone I, I know, uh, especially the horror fans, love this movie. And they think it's like the best horror movie of the year. And I put this on my roundup of the best horror movies of the year, but it's definitely not number one for me. I think it's it's a really unique movie. It's very interesting, but I feel like it's not as great as everyone else says it is. That said, I I do think the scene in particular, the crossplay scene is, is probably the most memorable scene in, in the movie. So I, I certainly don't object to it. Yeah. I don't think Brad HG or Ben saw this, right? That's a fact. Okay. Correct. Nope. I will put it in, in discussion for now. Cause maybe it'll slip in. I uh, mean, I can talk to you guys into it, but it's, um, it's really, really good. All right. I'm going to cut the next one immediately. This is the rental, the final reveal. Uh, Dave Franco's horror movie. I really liked it. I think the ending is really clever. I'm cutting it. <laughs> uh, ben, you and I both like run a lot, right? Uh, yeah, I, I would. Well, I don't know about a lot. I liked it. Uh, I, I haven't really thought about it much since, but I, I do think that rooftop escape scene is like kind of cool. I don't know. I, there's still so many moments, Jacob, that we still have to talk about today that I think maybe are ultimately more worthy than than even the rooftop escapes. I'm not sure quite how hard I want to go to that for this, but we've reached in that movie, I think we feel like we've reached a point though where like there's so there's enough left. That we're getting down to the skin, like this is a point we can start like fighting for things. It's a little bit, like I kind of want to fight for the rooftop escape and run. Is, is anybody <laughs> else, before I launch into this, does anybody else like run enough for me to make this worth it? I just realized I forgot to talk about seeing run in my like big rundown of the movies I watched yesterday. Um, I liked run. I can't say I loved it. I don't know if I would support a, one of its moments being on uh, the list. I, 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 I do think that. I think run is really good up until the ending and then it's not good. That said, I, I think that rooftop scene is so well shot. And at the same time, I also feel like 
there had to be a better way. Basically, the to set up the scene, if you haven't seen it, people at home, the main character, she's in a wheelchair and her mother is crazy and her mother locks her in a room and she wants to get out of the room. And the only way she can think of to do that is to literally crawl across the roof to get in through an open window. And it's, it's like something from Die Hard. It's very like uh, intense and it's great. And at the same time, a part of me is like, there has to be a better way than literally like crawling across and she her had to roof. do it with um water like in her mouth and she yeah. has asthma too and i was like what if she has an asthma attack while she has water in her mouth crawling on That's top why of it's her great. it's it's like an impossible it's like she's in an impossible situation she has an impossible plan and throughout the entire right. movie uh kira allen the actress who, who does use a wheelchair in real life which lends the whole scene this even more amazing physicality uh she's been to be a smart person she does not do dumb things she she thinks through every situation that's, in, that's put in front of her and Sarah Paulson plays her mom. It's also smart. She's crazy and evil, but she's smart. And I, I, I love that uh, Chloe, the character, uh, this situation is presented. Yes, it's ridiculous. She has to do a lot of ridiculous things to get out of this house. But what else can she do? And given the, the pieces in front of her, uh, this is a smart person um, in an impossible situation doing the impossible. I found it to be in a movie I liked overall. This is a really, really good scene. And I'll cut the postman scene, which comes after this, because... Where the, the postman put by Pat Healy is forced to choose between believing the evil lying mother or the daughter, and he chooses to believe the daughter, and it, things go poorly for him. But for me, it's an encapsulation of why I like the rooftop scene, which is in another movie the the postman would be like, "Oh, I believe the mother immediately," but no, he reads the situation, reads it correctly and accurately, and does the right thing. And I'm cutting the postman scene, but I think it, it all feeds together to a thriller where people, up until the ending, as Chris says. People are smart people making tough choices as opposed to idiots like falling into situations. And that to me, I think that makes a run really special. It makes a rooftop escape really exciting for like reasons beyond it being an action scene. I kind of want the rooftop scene on the list. Let's yeah, make you know what? Let's put the rooftop scene on the list. Let's make it number 50 tied with whatever I said number 50 was. Tied above Hubie Halloween. And you got Hubie Halloween. Ben, do you have any harsh objections to this? No, no, I'm fine. I think it's a cool moment in the movie. Um, I, I think we can do it. Okay. All right, another movie I think only Chris and I have seen, uh, Scare Me. Uh, has anyone, else, uh, anyone other than me and Chris seen Scare Me? Mm-mm. Nope. This is a really, really neat movie. It is essentially a horror anthology, uh, but, with, but with a twist. Uh, uh, it's directed by uh, Josh Rubin. I'm putting up the IMDb page, which I'm stalling. Okay. And it stars uh, Josh Rubin himself, the director and writer, as this uh, struggling amateur writer finds himself during a blackout uh, sharing a cabin with a really successful horror writer played by Aya Cash. And they end up spending the evening swapping stories. And each of the stories they share is essentially an extended monologue or occasionally with, with interjection of their characters. And the first, I, I put the three stories on here. So, uh, for the first story, second story, and the third story. And the first story is the amateur writer, uh, whose name is Fred, uh, trying to improvise a werewolf tale. And, and, Aya Cash's family keeps on interjecting, keeps on interrupting, and keeps on trying to make it make it better. And it's a really, really funny, uh, really, uh, really funny, occasionally creepy scene where it sets the tone of the movie, which is these characters are going to tell stories, and the camera is going to act like these stories are more or less playing out. It gets very cinematic, very dark. There's a great use of sound, great use of lighting, and you can almost the storytelling is so good from the characters that you can sort of imagine and picture the anthology movie playing out in your head even though it's just words it's about the power of storytelling and the power of words uh and the second scene is one that fanny herself tells which is essentially a long monologue from Aya cash as she goes in this increasingly unsettling like 
uh, uncomfortable horror story. And the third one is after they do, do, do cocaine and do a really, really funny, wild, out there story. I think all three stories are really fantastic and showcase what a horror film, film with one location and only two characters can do with just words and how evocative the filmmaking can be. But I also am realistic and realize that only Chris and I saw this. I don't even know how Chris feels about Scare Me. So Chris, are any of these moments worth fighting for? Uh, I, I like this movie. I love the, I love that it works because it really shouldn't, because if this were a normal horror anthology movie, like the minute these characters started telling their stories, it would cut to, you know, actual representations of the stories. And instead it's literally just people talking and doing voices and acting things out. And and when I first read that, I was like, wow, this is going to suck, but it it works really well. That said, I don't really know if, if they belong on the list. Yeah, I'm cool cutting them. I just want to give them their moment in the spotlight here because I think that Scare Me, Stream on Shutter, by the way, is really, really good. And I'm going to yield the floor because the next two moments are from Shirley, a movie that I am the only person in the podcast who does not like. So these moments are Shirley and Rose stand on the cliff and Shirley pours wine on the couch. Guys, uh, I think Shirley's in our top 10 site-wide. I'm not going to say anything more because I lost this fight on the, quali- on the Shirley quality fight. So which moment from Shirley belongs on the list because clearly one of them must. Um, I added the Shirley and Rose stand on the cliff uh, scene, and this is the scene where uh, Rose has uh, discovered that her husband is cheating on him and on uh, cheating on her. And Shirley uh, joins Rose as she's about to jump off on the cliff, and Rose says something like, "Oh yes, it would it would be so easy." And it's both of them staring over over the the edge. And uh, I thought that it was a scene that really embodied the whole women on the edge sort of themes running through it, but also one that um, feels like it's so interesting because Shirley has been the one who's been egging Rose on essentially like bringing her down with her in her sort of spiral paranoia. And here she's almost talking Rose back from taking that leap. And it's the pair of them sort of in, in kinship uh, looking at what may be the easy option, but refusing to do so. And uh, it's a it's a really interesting um, take on that staring into the abyss type of um, you know trope that we see in a lot of films. And I think it's it's a I think it's one that's multi layered. Uh, does anyone anyone else like really like this scene, or is it just some, one that like really struck me? It's definitely a really good scene. Um, if you want it on the list, I I will back you up. I'll be your second vote if you want, but I, I don't have um, strong feelings either way. Chris, did you put the pores one on the couch moment? No, I didn't, I didn't put, I haven't seen Shirley in like over a year. So I, I barely remember these things. I put them on. It's the one scene in Shirley I like, which is why I put it there to get the conversation rolling, backing back out. <laughs> um, man, I, I kind of like the wine moment a little bit better than the cliffside moment because the cliffside moment was the one where I, the movie sort of, um, it didn't fall apart for me because I, I enjoyed it, but like I, the reality of the movie splintered so much more than it had previously where I was like, okay, what, what exactly is going on here? Cause it's it sort of cross cut with these other moments and it seems like not all of them could be real. And some of them may be in the, in the story that's within the story. And, uh, I don't know. I, I was a little, uh, I guess, narratively confused at it, but I think HCU spoke well enough about it. And like visually it's, it's very striking. And I like the idea of it being 
like a, a metaphor of, of like these women literally being on the edge that the, the whole movie sort of seems to be about. So yeah, I'll, I'll back you on that one. Cool. Because I do like the Shirley pours wine on the couch scene, but I think it's it doesn't really have any deeper meaning beyond Elizabeth Moss just kind of being great at being an unhinged mm-hmm. lady um, and, you know, defying all the social norms that she is expect that is are expected of her. Uh, but uh, yeah, I am going to go with Shirley and Rose stay on the cliff because I really like what it says about womanhood and, and what this movie has to say about womanhood and that feminine grotesque. In our site-wide top 15, which goes live on Friday, if you listen to this on whatever day, who knows what day you listen to this. Uh, this is number eight. Shirley's number eight on the list. I, I'm, I, I refuse to stand in the way of Shirley not being on this list. In fact, I think it should be on the list to represent that. So I think this should go on the list. Do it. All right. I can hear Jacob just slowly dying in the back being like, okay, I guess it'll be on the list. <laughs> I mean, Shirley is no Hubie Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're, we're at a big one. We're at a scene, a movie that has a lot of nominations from us, and it's number two on our site-wide list. I think a movie we all like or love, that's Sound of Metal. We have five nominations. At least one of these should be in the top 50. I, I think I know which one I would pick, but I'll read through them first. The party scene, Sound of Metal. The final scene. Ruben is asked to leave the house. Ruben learns how to be deaf in the parking lot goodbye. These are all really great scenes and a really great movie. Maybe the best acted movie of 2020. I think the scene where Ruben is asked to leave the house by his deaf counselor, the guy who who has helped him learn how to be deaf, who uh, played with Paul Ratchie, who he can't hear in real life, was raised by deaf parents and is a deaf activist. He puts so much faith in Ruben, you know, learning that his disability is not is not a disability. It's it's it, it makes him different, but not like doesn't weaken him. That when Ruben gets surgery to get an implant so he can hear again, the sheer disappointment and shame on Joe's face and Paul Ratchie's face. Uh, and Ruben's reaction to it, of him realizing how much he's hurt him in this scene, and and Joe just telling him he has to leave the house because he has rejected his teachings, he has rejected the idea that there was nothing wrong with him. I think it's the most intense, best acted scene of 2020. I'm going to make a suggestion. Can we put two scenes from the Sound of Metal from Sound of Metal in our list? Because uh, I think, I, think have to. I really really love Ruben asks learn how to. Ruben is asked to leave the house because that's also one of my choices. Um, But I also really love the final scene in Sound of Metal. And this is after Ruben has uh, gotten the surgery to get the cochlear implants. And he had sort of anticipated getting these implants and everything would go back to normal. His hearing would be as it was before. And when he reunites with his girlfriend and um, he's starts to figure out that like nothing can be as it was before. Everything sounds tinny and metallic and uh, he won't be able to play music as he thought he would. And um, he and his girlfriend are now both more settled in their own lives. And uh, he, uh, he leaves his girlfriend. I think she's sleeping or something. And he like, he's walking around Paris um, and uh, he sits down on a bench and takes out the implants, which are giving him so much of this noise, everything. And he just hears everything and he takes it out. And he sits in silence and is finally able to love the silence, which was the long battle that he's been having in the entire movie. And he sits in that stillness and it's just so wonderful and calm and serene. And uh, I think it's just like the whole movie sort of like coming to that moment. And um, so I want to nominate both the final scene and Ruben is asked to leave the house because Paul Ratchie, oh my God, he just tore my heart out in that scene. 
Yeah, I, I guess this is. I think both these scenes sum up what I love about this movie so much, which is it never condemns Ruben for making the choice to get a cochlear implant because that's a choice people will make in real life and whether they will, you know, stand by or not. But it also makes it very clear that it isn't a movie about a guy who gets an implant and suddenly his life's okay again. It's it's a movie about a man who makes a choice, but it's a choice that betrays people who feel like he should never have made that choice. He was right the way he was. He was fine the way he was. And the way the movie balances that conflict uh, in you know, the deaf community of what is the right thing to do? Uh, what is the right thing by you? I would be okay with both scenes on the list personally, but I want to hear from everybody else. Is there a scene here that stands up for anybody else beyond these two? No, I, I agree with uh, what HT said for sure. Cause uh, these were the two scenes that I would have picked out of this batch as well. And I think that, um, you're right. It's the the scene where you know he's asked to leave the house. It's not about condemning him for wanting uh, cochlear implants, but it's more so just the the reasoning. And I think that he's just he's hurt by it because he's built you know in a short amount of time such such a uh, a friendly and warm you know relationship with a lot of the people um, in this deaf community. And he even you know tells him that a lot of people have come to you know uh, re- rely on on Ruben and believe in him. And so not only has he uh, he's, you know, in a way bet- betrayed them or left them behind in favor of hearing. He's also betrayed himself because he has, he, he was able to, you know, fit in and learn sign language and start to create, you know, a new life for himself. But, um, you know, in a, in a moment where he wanted to hear again and get back to the life that he had before, you know, he decided to get these cochlear implants and it's not the instant easy fix that he thought it was. And I, um, and so I, th- I think both of these scenes are um, the, the best in the, in the movie, and I think that they both deserve to be on the list. Uh, ben and Chris, uh, what do you guys think about any of these scenes, even the ones we haven't talked about yet? I would say de- I'm fine with putting both of the scenes we've talked about on the list I, I, uh, and then cutting the rest. That's, that's fine with me because the two scenes are very uh, memorable and good. I nominated The Parking Lot Goodbye, and I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Olivia Cook, who is also in this movie. She plays Lou, who is uh, Riz Ahmed's character's, uh, I guess, like life partner, romantic interest, and and uh, bandmate. And I think, rightly so, a lot of the attention uh, around this movie is going on Riz Ahmed and, and Paul Rishi. But uh, I think Olivia Cook is, is just so great in this movie. And there's this moment where uh, she basically just like convinces... Riz Ahmed's character to go to this deaf community and and learn because she knows that she's you know th- these two people have their back like have each other's back in a way that uh, that you know everyone in a relationship can only hope for and Lou this this Olivia Cook character realizes that she is no longer capable of of providing Reuben with what he needs she she knows that she can't do it as as much as they want to be in this insular little world driving around going from gig to gig she knows that she's in over her head and she knows that he has to get the help that that he needs and she's not able to provide that for him and this heartbreaking goodbye that they have in this parking lot was just uh man such a great moment but yeah I ultimately I agree with you guys and I kind of think Jacob why don't we put the uh is asked to leave the house like directly on the list and then put the final scene in discussion because I feel like there's so much stuff in discussion from the other day when we recorded that we might've even forgotten about. And I don't want us to regret just instantly throwing two things on here and then having something, having us wish that we would have taken a closer look later in the episode. Actually, I completely forgot about the in discussion list. I was like, we're making, we're almost done. And then I was like, Oh no, we have a completely <laughs> look at we're, we're, we're near the end though. Uh, I'd be okay with that because, but at the same time, I want to hear from HG because she put on such a 
eloquent defense for the final scene. Would you be okay with that being in discussion for now while we figure this out? Or would you make a fight for that being when we put in lock-in right now? I am fine with it, but I really, really think it should be on the list. Um, so yeah, I'll just put it in for now, but I'm going to definitely stump for it later. Right. Here's what I'm going to do. Rather than lock one in, I'm going to delete the party scene, which comes right before the final scene and is sets that one up, but it, it it's not as good. Uh, the parking lot goodbye, which is great, as Ben said, has to go. Also, want a quick moment for it. Ruben until I be deaf, which is a montage of him adjusting to living in deaf community, and it's really beautiful and lovely. And uh, showcases, you know, I feel like so often we have this mental image of deaf people. Oh, poor deaf people, which is such a ableist way to think about life. And we see these people having such rich, incredible lives without the use of, of hearing. It's, it's amazing to see it happen. But I am cutting it. I'm putting the final scene and Ruben's has to leave the house in, in discussion. I imagine one or both will make it onto our list 100%. Let's, let's not make the choice right now. Let's keep moving. We're almost made our way through the bottom of the list. Uh, then we can, we can return to in discussion and fill in the remaining slots. The final is in the Speed Cubers. This is a really, really charming documentary about people who compete uh, at Ruby's Cube tournaments. And the finals are really harrowing. And it's really, really fun. It's not going to make the list, but shout out to the Speed Cubers for making me care deeply about speed cubing. <laughs> Uh, Sputnik, the alien emerges from the mouth. Anyone else beyond me see Sputnik? No, sorry. Oh, this is a really, really good, gnarly Russian sci-fi horror movie. Or And the opening sequence is, is a, a scientist is invited to a secret research installation in the Russia in the 80s for unknown reasons. And she's asked to emerge an astronaut who's returned from, from a, uh, or it's a cosmonaut who's returned from a voyage into space. And while he sleeps, a giant alien emerges from his mouth and then returns to his mouth later on as a deeply unsettling piece of body horror. And Sputnik itself is a very good movie, but I'm not going to fight for it. I'm the only one who's seen it. Ben, tell us about the opening tracking shot of The Vast of Night. I actually didn't put this on here. Um, I wonder if somebody else did, because I, I feel like the tracking shot that I would argue for comes a little bit later in the movie where it sort of treks across this this small town and goes through a basketball game that's in progress and, and sort of swoops up. It's like a four minute shot. That's, that's the opening. That's, well, that's it's, like the well, it's not quite the opening shot. It's actually, it's more like it, it's in the first act and it's early on, but it comes after we've already been introduced to the characters and it, oh, it, I see. Okay. it goes, I've, it goes from the, the, uh, the telephone operating um, office all the way over to the radio station. I've changed yeah, I just it's to be that big tracking shot in the vast of night. Yeah, I, I misread. I, I misunderstood that. Um, yeah, it's a it's a great moment, and Amazon even put up a, uh, a sort of like how they did it video. Um, so if you want to go into that, I mean, The Vast of Night is just it's a really really small movie. It ended up on my top ten list. I love this film. Um, I, I, frankly, I don't think this moment is going to end up on, on our list. So I don't know how much time we want to spend talking about it. And actually, it's one of those movies where it's sort of like the less you know going into it, the better, I think, for your overall experience. Um, I know Chris wasn't like a huge fan of it, uh, even though, <laughs> you know, you guys were acknowledging that like a lot of people, you guys, I think Chris and Jacob both saw it like at a film festival last year or something. And both of you were not like huge fans of it. So I know that it doesn't have like a ton of support here. Um, HT, I think you liked it, but didn't really love it. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I liked it. I I'm, I was really impressed by its technical um, feats, especially being on such a low budget as it was. So if I were to vote for a moment from The Vast of Night, which I think should go on since it is one of your favorite movies of the year, um, it would be the tracking shot and not the Billy's phone call, which is the second moment nominated here. Yeah, Ben, I want yeah, to make, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I want to make it very clear. I am not a Vast of Night fan. I think it's fine. I don't love it. However... 
there are moments in the Fast Night that are spectacular, and there, this is a list of moments, not about movies. It's moments. I 100% Fast Night being on this list. The big tracking shot, I, I think, is very, very good. I added Billy's phone call, which is a moment where I was super into the film for about 10 minutes, where a character calls the local radio station with a story of something unnatural, and it's just this audio play where you listen to a voice and get in, you get entire like scare me, you get an entire story being told through voice only, and it's kind of remarkable how eerie and under your skin it gets when you don't even see the, the person on the other line i am i think vast night should be on this list somewhere there are, it is it is too well liked it is too well made these moments are too powerful for me to ignore in a film i otherwise don't think holds up overall and i per, I, I personally think that billy the phone call scene is actually better because um tracking shots are very cool it's 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 always awesome when you can see a very long shot and that's so technically impressive you wonder how they put it off i think that Billy's phone call is so much more interesting because of how simple and yet effective it is because it's basically just exposition, but it creates so much quiet tension and suspense that you're hanging on every single word in that scene. And it's so impressive because it's just two people talking and there's nothing special about it. It's literally just a slow zoom in on Billy listening to this phone call at the radio station. And it works so well. And like Jacob, this was the scene where I was like, all of a sudden, I was super captivated by this movie. I was like, oh, this is this is awesome. Um, and so I, I really liked Vast of Night as well. And uh, I think the tracking shot, like I said, is cool. But I think Billy's phone call is the better scene out of these two. Okay. Man, I'm surprised. I, I thought that this movie wouldn't end up on this list. But yeah, I, I'm okay with putting Billy's phone call on there. It sounds like that's the one that has the most support. Yeah, I'm fine with uh, Billy's phone call too. Yeah, that, that's if we, I think Vast Night should be on this list. I think, I think that's the scene. All right. All right, do you, want, do you want to put tracking shot in, in discussion, Ben, or should you delete it? Nah, we can we can skip it. Okay. So who here is the fan of alcoholic Ben Affleck in The Way Back? Yeah, I want to hear you guess, Jacob. Uh, this is a Brad sit pick. It is. You, yeah, yeah, okay. I, 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 really? I, I, I thought I it was it, Chris. I didn't put this on the list. I like this movie, but I just realized, I wish I had put, there's a, there's a scene in this movie where Ben Affleck has to make a phone call and he drinks like 500 <laughs> beers and it shows him like drinking oh, yeah. every single one. That was like, he just keeps scene. going to the fridge <laughs> and opening beers. And I almost wish I had put this on the list, but I didn't. So let's move on to this scene that actually is on the list. Yeah, that is a a, a sadly, darkly funny scene like, in, in certain ways. Um, but yeah, so this scene, I, I'm not necessarily expecting it to make, make the list. I, I actually just, I just really like this scene and I like this movie more than I, I thought that I would. And um, what it is, is winning the game isn't a happy ending in the way back. Um, so in this movie, Ben Affleck is a, uh, a former high school basketball star whose um, life has kind of gotten away from him uh, due to a um, family trauma. His uh, son died uh, and he's been depressed ever since he's become an alcoholic and he doesn't really have any direction in his life, but he's asked to coach um, his old high school basketball team. And he, it's this moment where he kindly finally feels some purpose. He's not drinking anymore. Um, but then he has you know, um, a, a fallback because he, you know, is reminded of, you know, just how terrible it was when his son died because uh, some family friends of theirs are dealing with the same situation where their son also has, uh, I believe it's cancer and he's also not doing so well. And so he starts drinking again and he um, it's, you know, it's a big problem. And there's uh, this, idea you know um with these kinds of sports dramas that like oh when people come back and like they win the game and that's the happy ending everything is okay and so he helps his team 
come back and become a winning team and they get into the the finals. But that's not the, where this movie ends. And it, it, it ends with him having this, um, you know, breakdown and returning to being an alcoholic, losing his job and having to deal with his life again. And so the happy ending of winning the game doesn't, doesn't exist here. It's, it's much more real. And I just really appreciated the turn that a movie like this, which easily could have been another formulaic sports movie. And in some ways it does still fit that very much, but I think I, I just like this approach so much because it's, you know, it, it's just a, uh, the, the way it deals with the idea of, you know, the, the sports, you know, the sports will make him feel better and everything like that. And like, it's not as simple as that. There's always that, that lingering threat of, you know, going back to your, your demons. All right. Uh, it sounds like a really good scene, Brad. I actually have not seen the way back, so you can correct me on this. Is it a top fifty scene, or is it a scene you want to you really like, enjoy talking about? And we can cut. What do you? What do you? Tell me. Be honest. There's there is so much more in the in discussion area that I I'm in support of, and I know will have stronger support. That I I'm fine with cutting it. Um, but if you haven't seen the way back, I I would recommend giving it a watch on HBO Max. All right, cutting it. All right, we're at a big one. Another one with a bunch of nominations. This is Wolf Walkers, a movie that uh, won over a whole bunch of us and ranked very high on our site-wide uh, top 15. The nominees are Wolf Vision, Running with the Wolves, Mother and Daughter Reunited, The Battle in the Burning Woods, and The Healing Scene. HT and Brad and I are, I think, the big Wolf Walkers fans here. Uh, Chris and Ben, did you guys see Wolf Walkers? Uh, no, I haven't seen it. I did, and I liked it, but I... Wouldn't say that I was in love with it. All right. Well, we'll use Ben as a tiebreaker when we eventually argue over which scene belongs on the finale and, and on the list for sure. Because I think that running with the wolves is the scene here. Uh, it is the best showcase of what Cartoon Saloon is doing with their animation. It is funny and thrilling and exciting. It has wolf vision in it. So you don't need to have wolf vision with its own category. And maybe it lacks the emotional punch of some of the other scenes. Uh, but in terms of me watching a 2D traditionally animated movie, John forcing how did they do that and not knowing how they did that, Running with the Wolves is the scene. Uh, HG, what do you think of these five scenes? I was about to say, I was like, oh, yeah, Running with the Wolves, we could com- combine that with Wolf Vision because it's basically like flows into the other. Yeah, cutting and, Wolf Vision. <laughs> yes. Um, and wow, Running with the Wolves, the scene, that was the scene that made my jaw drop. It's so beautiful. And the parts with Wolf Vision just verge into synesthesia. It seems like the it's just is able to tap into more than more senses than just vision it's beautiful and just wholly immersive and it's so exciting and full of energy it feels like the animation is like threatening to come out of its lines and the energy is just so there and so strong and um you can really feel the joy from the characters who are um uh just like the embracing their wild side so to speak and it's just a, it's a beautifully animated scene and one that really taps into sort of the um the i guess the, also like the the bigger themes of uh, embracing nature and embracing your own nature and stuff um and yeah i i fully am on board with that but i do want to give a shout out to um the healing scene uh which is the scene that like basically towards the end of the film where um Maeve is uh, reunited with uh, her mother who has been injured um, and she is attempting to um, to heal her, but she doesn't have enough power. She's just a child and she calls on all the other wolves uh, to help. And it becomes it 
it becomes like this beautifully animated scene full of light that uh, lights up all of the cave drawings around them that start to dance around. And you see one of the, the drawings, which is a, a scene of like a picture of uh, a little a mother wolf and a daughter wolf that's kind of reflected of how of what's going on beneath the, the drawings. And it's just a, it's a really beautiful gorgeous scene so i want to give a shout out to that one but i'm also good with just like with running the with the wolves definitely locking in for the top 50 uh brad what do you think of these scenes so i would actually propose that maybe um because i think that they share similar dna and like and what they achieve in the movie itself that the mother and daughter being reunited and the healing scene could maybe be one because the one kind of leads into the other and um they both kind of just have this wonderful uplifting spirit i think the moment when um the mother and daughter reunited like that that wonderful animation of their you know glowing uh you know mystical spirits embracing as they actually you know uh, embrace in person below them as well is wonderful but and i think that carries over into the healing scene and just that you know that triumph of uh you know her mother coming back into her own body and then the the union you know of of the father and daughter with them and creating you know this uh, what is essentially you know a, a new family um i i i would suggest that we put those together but maybe that's just me i think i see what you're saying i think they're too far separate from each other to be together but i think you're right i think the beauty of the mother and daughter reunited scene is reflected very heavily in the healing scenes i'm okay cutting mother daughter and keeping healing scene on here for now uh ben as somebody who is um not as warm on it as we three. Uh, do, do, do the remaining three scenes, uh, Battle in the Burning Woods, the healing scene, Running of the Wolves, stand out to you? I think Running of the Wolves should just go on the list and the other ones should be cut. Uh, I that, he, that healing scene is so wonderful. I would it's cut so Battle true. in the Burning Woods for sure just because yeah. it's it's so similar to other you know climactic scenes in, in other animated movies that take place. It is in an incredible stuff. action scene, but yeah, it, 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 we can cut it. I also... The emotion really hits hard in the healing scene in Wolf Walkers uh, with when you see Mabe, the daughter, like crying in the lap of her mother as she realized yeah. that she doesn't have the ability or the power to heal her. It's heartbreaking. And then, you know, everyone coming, her bringing everyone to come together uh, while the climax is happening simultaneously outside is just God gripping stuff. And um, so I, I wish we could have both. Can we put Running with the Wolves? Uh, locked in and healing scene for in discussion. I'm starting to wonder if it should be the other way around. If healing scene should be locked in and running with the wolves in discussion. Healing scene does have like much more of that emotional impact too. Yeah, I agree because because I do love running with the wolves as well. But that that also does have some kind of similarities to to other scenes of of its ilk that we've seen before. I mean, and the healing scene may not be may not have the big dramatic oomph of running with the wolves in terms of like you know being an exciting chase scene. But it's no less daring in how it's presenting its animation, which is what my initial reason for pushing Run at the Wolves, whereas Healing Scene is equally like doing stuff I've never seen any movie do before. Let's put both on. <laughs> All right, so Healing Scene locked in top 50, Running with the Wolves in discussion, just so we can have a tie with Hubie Halloween in 51. Let's do it. <laughs> Now I'm insulted about it being tied with Ruby Hollow. Yeah, it doesn't feel good. <laughs> right, there are four scenes left on this initial bomb list. I'm gonna, they're all mine. I'm going to run through them real quick and delete them. Uh, two scenes from The Wretched. A really strong, creepy horror movie uh, with a couple of really good moments, but it's not going to hang, so I'm deleting both of them. Uh, and Z, a horror movie about an imaginary friend gone awry. 
I put the bathtub jump scare and the creature in the playground. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Both scenes are indescribably terrifying. Uh, the, but the bathtub jump scare is the biggest jump scare since the kitchen scene in Insidious. Uh, I think only Chris saw this other than me, and Chris didn't care for it that much, correct? I don't even remember this. I remember there's a, there's a scene where a kid falls down the steps, and I was like, wow, that's shocking. But I don't remember this bathtub scene. Oh, see, there we go. The bathtub jump scare made me literally spill a drink all over myself, and that never happens. But I'm I'll have to it. rewatch it, because I saw this at the Overlook Film Festival, which was in New Orleans, and I was... I was probably drunk, so maybe I'll rewatch it, and it'll be better when I see it sober. Uh, Z is streaming on Shutter. It, it is, I think, genuinely a really creepy, good horror movie with some really killer jump scares. But with that said, guys, we're at a big moment. We have thirty-five movies, sorry, thirty-five moments locked in, and thirty-seven moments in, in discussion. So of those thirty-seven moments, we need to pull out fifteen to be locked in. So before we go any further. I want to revisit the moments that we said yesterday should be on the list, but we couldn't decide which one. So before we, you know, get too far into like the nitty gritty here, the first of those is Mank. We have two scenes from Mank from a discussion that we didn't decide on walking through the Hearst castle grounds and the drunken party crashing in Mank. Uh, I think we should have a Mank scene on this list. The question is which one we were split. I am adamantly in favor of walking through the Hearst castle grounds. Where did you guys fall again? Drunken party scene. Yeah, that's what that would be my vote too. I was with you, Jacob. So that that was where the split was. Brad, Brad, Brad did you watch Mank like you said you're going to? Unfortunately, I did not get to, so I cannot help. I think Chris, as the one who has Mank on his top ten list, should be the deciding factor here. Oh no! Don't put me on the spot. I don't want to alienate anyone. I need all the friends I can get. This I'll always be your friend, Chris. Um. Oh man, I don't know. Ah, uh, shit. Can, can I make my uh, case for? Um... You, no, you can make your case. <laughs> I make my case for All right the... now, I'm not voting for anything Ben likes after that pun. <laughs> Look, the drunken party scene is good. It is a very, very good scene. It's very memorable. Gary Oldman is acting his butt off, but he's just that he's acting his butt off. He is ranting and raving and describing the plot of Citizen Kane in great detail to to a bunch of people. It is a big actorly showcase and it's impressive, but it's just that it's an actorly showcase. Whereas the sense of mood and the sense of place in the Hearst Castle grounds where two people who have let their guard down two people who are always, one's literally an actress. One is a guy who's always putting on a show uh, amongst his writer friends. Their actual friends have an easygoing chemistry and they've escaped from a party and they're just walking through this surreal landscape. One is wondering, how do we get here? We're in Hollywood. This is odd. And we just have this, a movie full of people at each other's throats. It's a depiction of a friendship, one that gets challenged throughout the movie. And this is the heart of the film. It's where we understand why Mank does what he does and who he's hurting. Because this is a person who he's actively seeking out to do collateral damage to. And in the scene, we realize why that's a tough choice and why it matters. And it's happening against this impossible backdrop of, of beautiful grounds and animals. This this estate designed by a man with so much money that, you know, he created his own zoo that you can walk through and no other scene on this list or from 2020 felt like the scene. Whereas I've seen a lot of moments where a guy gets yell, where a guy yells drunkenly at a party. That's my case for the Hearst Castle Grounds. All right. You saw me. Also, right. I remember this, this is the scene where Amanda Seyfried says nerds and we need a scene with nerds on the list. So let's, let's, let's yeah, you win Jacob. We'll get the Hearst Castle on there. Okay. I'm locking it in to the list. All right, HG, I want you to take the lead next one. We have three moments from his house we talked about yesterday or two days ago. And those scenes were 
the uh, Dinnertime Hallucination, Besieged by Ghosts, The Fireside Encounter, Lost at Sea, and The Final Scenes. Where did you fall on these again, HD? Uh, I voted for The Fireside Encounter slash Lost at Sea and The Final Scenes. Um, and I think I'm going to lean towards the final scenes because that's when the movie all kind of comes together for me in terms of its message about cultural trauma and how we all carry our ghosts with us, even though I think that the imagery in the first two scenes are really, really striking and one of the most some of the most beautiful scenes uh, in horror movies from last year. But um, the final scenes where um, the the two the main couple are, Standing in their house, having just had their house inspected by the um, the social workers, and we see behind them all of the ghosts uh, of their past, all the people who they saw die, their friends, their um, their enemies, just standing behind them, and it's just a it's a really powerful moment and one that really struck me. So I'm voting for the final scenes of his house. Chris, his house. I know you were also kind of torn, like I was, as to which one to go for. Uh, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. I'm just very. Well, well Chris thinks. Uh, I think the Fireside Encounter is my choice slash Lost at Sea because the final scenes are incredibly moving and really powerful and cement what moves about. But the Fireside Encounter and Lost at Sea is the thing that his house does that no other film can do, which is the actual blend of character development, storytelling, and actual legit horror movie scares. Yeah, I would, I'm going to just stop you right there and agree with you. I think that's, that's the one I would go with. Yeah. Okay. I'm fine with it. I'm sorry. No, I'm not mad. I think that they're both really, really excellent scenes. I just lean a little more towards the final scene, but I really, really love the fireside scene too. And how it kind of has that revelation uh, plot wise, but also, also thematically. So I'm I'm happy with that scene being in our top fifty. We okay, should cut the other two. Uh, let's leave one in discussion for now. I'm gonna be a little, little picky about cutting from a discussion for now. Jacob, we're one one hour forty eight minutes in. We're, 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 look, we only have we only have five, 13 more titles. When we got this. Okay, okay. All right, sound of metal, the final scene, and Ruben is asked to leave the house. Both. Do of we them. just put both? Do we bite our lips and just put both of them on there because they're both two of the best damn scenes of last year? I guess. What are we counting as the final scene? Is it? Where he's in the park and he's, he's in the park, park. yeah, park. yeah. Where he, tur- where he turns his implants off. Man, I don't Check, know. we can't put both of them on immediately. There's so much other stuff that we like tabled from a couple days ago that we have to go back through. Hey, here's, right, here's, right. here's, okay. here's some stuff I think that we can easily cut. Do you, you mind if I, I make a, yeah, yeah, a run? Yeah, please, please, please. Uh, get rid of the scene from the old guard. It doesn't compare it to most of the other scenes that are in discussion so far. Yeah, I love the scene, but I think at this point, I agree. Um, yeah, me too. I was the okay. only one who made a little bit of a push for the Warner and extra- Extraction. Lots of better scenes on this list. We can cut it. Yep. Um, Nick Cage screaming about alpacas. That's not oh going to make God. it, is it, Jacob? <laughs> Damn it. Look, look, we can cut so much more. Let's cut everything from Trial of Chicago 7. Everything from Trial of Chicago 7. Rude. Rude. <laughs> no, rude. What about Michael Keaton? That's the only one I'll fight for in Trial of Chicago 7. Yeah, I, Charles Chicago 7, neither, neither scene, Michael Keaton or the Judge Malpractice has my support at this point. All right, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, you can scrap the judge, too. Sad. Real sad, guys. Brad, are you... Are you, you get, look, I, won't, look, I, won't, I won't fight. I love Charles Chicago 7. I know I'm a little bit more in the minority. I just It, it just hurts a little, you know? I promise they're tied with Hubie Halloween at 51. 
that makes it worse. <laughs> <laughs> we can cut flight under the fireworks for Wonder Woman 1984 because we already have a moment, and I don't think we really need to have two from that movie, even though I liked it more than everyone else. Yeah, agreed. <sighs> okay, um, let's do another quick run through anything else we can cut. Um, let's cut Joe Falls in the Great Beyond in the Great into the Great Before and Soul. We have a soul moment on here. But I think Wolf Walkers checks our box for visually daring animation. So, and that's what Soul does here. So I'm ready to, I'm, I'm cool cutting that. And we already have a Minari moment. So I feel like the Mountain Dew thing can probably be cut too. Yeah, let's yeah. cut it. Yeah, I do love that moment though. Okay, so, so let's, go, let's go with you. We have two moments from uh, David Copperfield, personal David Copperfield from uh, last time. Flying Kite and the Pawn Shop Adventure. They are both absolutely wonderful. And they both are about finding joy in mundane, in the mundane. I'm cool with either one at this point. My choice is Pawn Shop. I know Chris and HG had Flying a Kite. How do we feel now? Actually, I don't know where Chris stood because I voted for Flying a Kite, but I don't remember where, whether Chris oh, was. I thought Chris was Flying a Kite. Yeah. Was I thought I voted for like the final scene where they're all in the same room and they're talking. I'm, I, I can't remember. Um, Am I having like a stroke? What's going on? <laughs> I think we voted for one that we didn't put on the in discussion list and he was I, like, yeah, I, I, think, I think there was like another scene that I voted for that didn't even make any of these contentions. So I'm, I'm, I, yeah. 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 Do you have a, do you have a choice between those two? Since I know you 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 we three are the ones that like that like this movie. Uh, what's everyone's choices? What are your choices? Here? Mine was flying a kite. Mine's the pawn shop adventure. I feel like I shot down too many of HT's things, so I'm going to go with flying a kite this <laughs> Thanks, time. Just, Chris, just stay on her good side. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am not going to fight it. David Copperfield on this list is what I want, so it, it's on the list, and I'm deleting um, pawn shop adventure. Okay. The only ones we have left that are have multiple moments are Sound of Metal and Bill and Ted Face Music. So let's go ahead and have the, the Bill and Ted Face Music conversation right now. Let's put the final concert up and delete Dennis, even though I love Dennis. Dennis Caleb McCoy is number 51 on this list, tied with Hubie Halloween. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like when we publish the list, we should have... All of the like ones number fifty one and have it be all this. <laughs> Even though we don't have them in front, but like a, just a, like a big run on sentence that's all of the scene in like a block of text. The website just crashes yeah. when people try to load it. I think the greatest argument for the final concert and Bill and Ted being on this list. I know Chris has reservations, um, but my argument is that it does everything Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four wanted to do, but pulls it off without any without ever feeling like it's awkward or weird. Yeah. It's just so joyful. It's about you uniting under one idea, one song, and saving the world through song and saving the world through through that community. I love that. All right. I'm gonna say yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> sure. Put it on there. Uh, yes. Ben and Brad, are you are we okay with Bill and Ted being on this list? Yeah, yeah, that's I think that's a good idea. Okay. I still haven't seen it, but that's fine. All right, guys. So I have the sound of metal conversation. We we seem to. We, I really want to get this done so we can have our final ten with, with sound of metal lockdown. I don't. I have a nightmare. We fill up this entire list and forget about sound of metal. We need, <laughs> we, need, we, need to, we need to figure this out. Rumors has to leave the house or the, or the, or the final scene. I like both. 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 There's 24 moments here. How can you guys say both? I don't understand. The this. movie is number two on our collective list. It is a big deal. I mean, I get that, but like. I don't know. I guess I just feel weird about like being so flippant about putting multiple move or multiple moments from the same movie on here. I feel like I would the list we're, would be we're entering hour five of this podcast. We're not being flippant at all. 
Listen to how serious I am. I'm cutting both tenant scenes from this in discussion. No, but Elizabeth and Vicky is tall. The end of a long friendship as well from ten. I'm cutting them both. I would honestly rather have Elizabeth and Vicky is tall than both Sound of Metal scenes. What? No! Oh, get the hell out of here! Sound of Metal is not even on my top ten, so I'm sorry, guys. Elizabeth and Vicky being tall isn't even like just a a, a tenant movie moment. It's just the fact that she's tall all the time. Yep. But not every movie allows her to be tall. Did you see Great Gatsby? She's the same height as Tobey Maguire for most of that movie. Have you have you seen Tobey Maguire? He's huge. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben. What's your opinion on Sound of Metal of these two scenes? Um, Ruben is asked to leave the house. I am also Ruben is asked to leave the house. HG, what about you? I want both. HG, pick one. Ah, fine. Ruben is asked to leave the house. And I'm going to fight for the final scene because I love it so much. But yes, well, let's lock in. Ruben is asked to leave the house. Chris and Brad, are you okay with that one being the, our first submission to the list? Yeah, I do want that one more than the final scene. But I also, like HT, do love that final scene. So yes. Okay. Ruben is asked to leave the house. We have 10 slots left, guys, and 23 options. We can do this. We're here. Here it gets fun. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to freaking do it. Rose loses her virginity in Extraordinary is too unique of a scene, too special, too crazy, too wild. And it's the reason we make this damn list is to make sure people say, that little movie, wow, that has that moment. I should go watch that. Extraordinary belongs on this list. I was hoping that you would actually continue to fight for this because even though I haven't seen this movie, I think that if I had, I would be all about supporting it because it just sounds like it's totally for for me. It is it's not gross. Like I said, it's, it's such a wry, sweet Irish comedy that happens to end with two characters having sex to, to prevent a character being sucked into a devil hole. It's great. All right, you know what? Put it on. Yeah, I love the concept. All right, I'm put, I don't hear any... I'm putting it on. I, I, that's I my, think that's we not, should cut... Oh, I think we should cut the dressing room scene in Freaky because we already have a good emotional and funny scene from Freaky and the dressing room scene kind of repeats that, but with yeah, that's, the less effect, that's fine. I think. Yeah, I, I put it on the list. I'm fine with cutting it. I want to cut the end of a long friendship in Tenet because um, Elizabeth Debicki is too weird of a one that to cut immediately. I, I really like Chris's point with it. End of a long friendship is a moment I love in Tenet, but we already have a really good Tenet moment on our locked-in list, so I'm going to cut it in in favor of getting this list chugging forward. Okay. Okay. Um, in that same spirit, we prefer, well, okay, never mind. I'm gonna I'm gonna stay silent. <laughs> I think that. Chris, Tom Hanks inspires an uprising news of the world. Brad was a big fan. You saw this movie too. I know you didn't love the movie, but was this scene a great one? Oh man, I don't know. It's it's tough because Tom Hanks, you know, Tom Hanks is such a goddamn good actor. He makes that scene work. At the same time, it felt like really on the nose to me. Like they were like really hammering it home. So I I don't know. I don't I I, I don't dislike the scene, but I don't know if I would fight for it. But eight slots left, Chris. What are you gonna do? Yeah, Chris, oh, Chris t- tell me, Chris, of these 20 movies remaining, 20 moments on the list, which one deserves one of the eight spots? I'm looking, I'm looking. Uh, Elizabeth Becky is tall in tenage. <laughs> I'm list. supporting Chris, too, not just because he supported me uh, for the flying kite. I think that Elizabeth Becky is tall is a moment, and not just a moment in tenant, but a moment in history pop culture history <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna say this if we have two moments from tenant and one of them is elizabeth debicki is tall and we don't have two moments from sound of metal i will throw slash film into oh, the sun we, 
Do we have a tenant moment on here already? Yeah. We do. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Then I, all right, I'll be fair. It was I won't the Freeport heists. So both of them, I think. Yeah, we, we, decided, we decided that since the Freeport heist scenes take, take place at the same time, we were going to cheat and both be on the list in the same entry. How about this? <sighs> How about Elizabeth Zabicki is tall and the following scene from Santa Metal? We have two tenant, two Santa Metals, and we just, we, we cut that, we rub that band aid right off. I don't know. I would love if we had a list with all one one and dones. I would love if we had a list that didn't repeat itself. That's but that's me. Am I? Does anyone else feel that way? I don't want to be like. You know, yeah. per- kind of do Let's do this. I'll I'll cut both of these his house moments that we didn't pick because have yeah. his house in the list. That that'll make things easier. I guess we can cut Birds of Prey, the breakfast sandwich. Although RIP. No, don't don't cut that. I, I want to fight <laughs> for that said, one. Ben, you're just like, yeah, I kind of want one and yeah, ben. you, Ben. Although we, honestly, we, I we already have between yeah, we have and bro- hair tie. Oh, okay. All right. I forgot that the hair tie was in there. I, I wanted to make sure we had at least something from Birds of Prey. So yeah, ah, damn, I love that, I, that I, breakfast sandwich. But yeah, yeah, I agree good. with the breakfast sandwich thing too. Though I mean, I don't, I don't know. I kind of would vote for breakfast sandwich over the hair tie. Oh, hair tie. I think I did too the other day, but I don't know. I wanted to back HC in that moment, but now I'm regretting it. You have both. <laughs> I love both moments. I do. I do appreciate pre- what like what the hair tie scene stands for, but I do think that the breakfast sandwich is, is better. I feel like that's the scene everyone talked about in the movie. Like, I know I saw people talking about the hair tie scene too, but I feel like the breakfast sandwich is the thing. Like it became like a meme every, you know, I just feel like that. But I also feel I, bad though about trouncing on it when HT is the only woman on staff and it is a, 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 a very female empowering. That is a good know, point. You know, Let's keep it on there. So we don't look like. <laughs> I would be okay with like, you know, I like both scenes a lot, almost equally. So I'd be happy with, I'd be fine with, replacing the hair toss scene with the breakfast sandwich because i so really once, love once you take a scene off the locked in list we open up a kettle of worms i'm oh. not i'm not opening the kettle <laughs> I, I think the hair tie deserves to be on there we i think we hashed that out well enough the other day um, right, so I, I think we can scrap breakfast sandwich. r.i.p breakfast sandwich but tied for 51 with Kubi halloween <laughs> <laughs> um, lost in the crawl space and relic I know I'm the big relic stumper here. And I just got extra already on the list. I don't want to be too greedy, but the, the, the crawl space scene in relic is one of the great horror set pieces of 2020, maybe of recent years. And even Chris, who doesn't love the movie, said this is the scene. So either we're put on the list or cut it right now and, and take it out, take it out of its misery. Uh, if you, if you really want it on there, put it on there. No one's going to stop you, Jacob. You can do whatever you want. This is a democracy. <laughs> is it though? Close enough. <laughs> I don't know. It's so hard because I haven't seen I haven't it. Seen I don't know what I can either. say. I'm sorry. I think I, I think if Jacob is so passionate about it and he's he's done that for us when we have been very passionate about a scene that maybe doesn't have like the support or enough people to see the movie to give their support. That if if he thinks that it is like really one of the like defining horror scenes of 2020, then it should be on the list. Yeah, I I'm, I I concur. Same. Yeah. Thank you guys. Um, it's one of the cases where it's like, I feel really selfish because like I'm trying to argue for m- movies that, you know, you guys haven't seen or, or don't feel as passionately about, but it's, I genuinely think if you, if, you, if more of you had saw Relic, we, this scene would have gone to this very quickly. I, I genuinely, from the bottom of my, of my stomach, believe that. Um, I think we can cut the synagogue scene in Borat because we already have a scene from Borat. And yeah. I think the synagogue scene is really good, but uh, it didn't make the headlines that we the other one did. I agree. It's, a, it's, a, it's my favorite scene in the movie, but I think the Giuliani scene is more important and should be on the list. Yeah, go ahead and cut it. Marcus talks to God and bad boys for life. 
Do we have any bad boys for life? We do not. Do we want no. a bad boys for life moment on our list? As discussed in the last session, this, this is an actually good movie. And this is an actually good scene that treats characters with respect and really reinvents how I thought a bad boys movie could, 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 could work. But like I said, I, it's, I don't think there's enough support for bad boys for life to get on this list. Chuck it. Let's go. All right. Let's. Marcus Toxic God and Bad Boys for Life tied for 51. With- <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to, I guess I'm the only one who probably really wants the, the scene from Emma in the list. That's the drafty proposal, a.k.a. Bill Nye versus the draft. I think it's a really funny, really sweet scene. Captures that semi-satirical romantic tone of Jane Austen and the movie. Emma is one of the movies that I just really enjoyed watching and one of the bright spots of 2020 for me. But I'm probably the only one in liking it. But I will no, say, I, 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 will, I, I will watch the scene over this. and over again. I watched this. You did? During, during the last session. You, just, you spoke directly to Brad, never to me. And you never asked me if I'd seen it. And I have seen it. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> I think Emma belongs on the list. Yay! <laughs> All right. Cool. Jacob has my back. I'm going to do it. I'm going to uh, no, let's, let's make sure, do we have blessings of Chris and Ben for this? Oh uh, yeah, I don't even. I haven't seen it, but I'm <laughs> sure. Go for it. I haven't seen it either. Okay, I guess, I guess you have seven left. Seven left and thirteen options. So, actually, more than half of this list can get, can get more more than half the remaining movies can get on the list. Let's put Elizabeth Debicki as tall. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look. Let's the last one if we do it. Here's, here's here's my concession. I'll I'll give in to putting the final scene of Sound of Metal on the list to have two Sound of Metals if we can get. Two tenets, just so I can have Elizabeth Debicki as tall. I think it's a great deal. I, I accept it immediately. For else does. I, so what, what would that leave us with? Four remaining. Yeah, that's uh, fine. Oh, f- five remaining. Five remaining. Okay. Uh, I guess for the the sake of uh, good audio, that will make the final fights we're about to have more interesting. So yeah, fuck it, let's do it. All right. So final scene is kind of metal, and Elizabeth Debicki is tall and tenet. Yes, I've up. won. My my long my long con paid off. Good night, everyone. I feel like I was only fighting for it more than you, Chris. <laughs> that was part of the con. I had to let everyone else do my work for me. All right, incepted you. Yeah, like I, I can't remember what happened last time, but I, I was digging up some tenant trivia the other day, and the, the, the costume designer on tenant literally said, "Christopher Nolan, we are not going to hide our height." And I think that's right. an amazing thing. I think that's truly incredible, and it's weird enough to be on our list. I, our list should not be stodgy, and that's. It's great. Okay. Uh, tell me why the giant monster appears should not be an under, uh, an underwater should not be on the list because that movie that moment's rad. The movie's rad. The moment's rad. I haven't seen it, unfortunately. I, I, I don't. I don't have an argument against it because I, I don't disagree. I think underwater is is such a fu- cool fucking movie. Let's do this. Let's um, let's all go through. Put an asterisk next to to one moment you think belongs in the top in the remaining five. Hmm. <sighs> Um, this is what they call good radio. Typing <laughs> 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 is everyone listens at home. Yeah, I'll, I'll go there. Okay. So it looks to me like Mangrove and Underwater have some support. Courtroom observing report moment in Mangrove and the giant monster appears underwater both have two votes. Put them on the list. Do, do it. it. All right. Yep. So that means will... how many slots do we have left, Jacob? Let me go and lock this in. Of course, giant monster appears is a underwater is so good. This encourages people to go watch underwater. Then great. So um, okay, we have three three slots left. Nine movies remaining. So let's read out the last nine uh, movies that we have. 
Nicholas Cage screams about the oh you do actually you have you have a much pleasant more pleasant voice than me. Oh, thanks. Okay, first Nicholas Cage screams about alpacas in Color Out of Space, the kitchen murders in Possessor, the drunken party crashing Citizen Kane pitch in Mank, the scientific explanation for pickling in American Pickle, the opening attack in, in how do you say Impetigor? Impetigor. Impetigor. Carrie Coon dances in The Nest. Tom Hanks inspires an uprising in News of the World. See you down the road in Nomadland, and one last conversation with Dad and onward. I'd like to add that I put an asterisk next to the second Nomadland scene, and no one cared. Yeah, because everybody else didn't vote for it. I had to go with the majority. It's the democracy. I think right. we should cut the kitchen murders and possessor. I haven't seen it, but from the conversation we had, it sounds like it was about which one was more shocking, and the other, the opening one, won out. Chris, you're the possessor stand here. Uh, cut it. Okay. Uh, ben, is the nest one of the final three? Or is it- I was just going to say, I kind of feel like we should just put it on there because, uh, like HD said, I mean, there's just something cool about having Carrie Coon dancing on a list. And then also, like, you know, as Chris was alluding to earlier, there's something cool about this list being a representative thing where, like, we can sort of stump for movies that were un- underseen during the year. And I feel like the nest meets that criteria as well. I agree. I want Carrie Coon dancing on our list. Yeah, do it. Put right. it on there. We have two slots remaining. Seven left to pick from. Let's cut Mank, the drunken party crashing scene. Yeah. Put um put onward on there because Jacob sounded like he really liked. I've that had scene. you guys have given me so many concessions. I, I've gotten so many concessions. You deserve it. You've earned it. Let's put it on there. I say. Uh, here's the thing, though. If I had to pick between Onward and Call It Out of Space, I would pick Nicholas Cage, Reese Metal Packets over Onward. All right, I can't I'd rather have that, too, actually, because I, I yeah, I, I just, Onward's so middle of the road. I don't like Onward at all. I was just trying to be nice, but okay, <laughs> let's put it out back. I'm, I'm, I'm coming Onward. Um, <laughs> so for the final two slots, we have Nicholas Cage and Alpacas, Sign of the Expedition for Pickling, The Opening Attack in Impetigore, Tom Hanks inspires an Uprising, and See You Down the Road in Nomadland. I do want to add to Brad's support for Seed on the Road in Nomadland. We do have, like, how many movies do we have that have doubles now? I think three movies. Sound of Metal, Tenet. They think just us two. Might just okay. be us two. I wouldn't mind having Nomadland being the, the third double. I also wouldn't mind the extremely intense opening scene of Impetigore being on this list, where a woman's working her, her dead-end boring job at the night shift at the toll booth, and a man comes through, asks her about who she is, and drives away. Then he stops... He gets out of his car, and in a very long shot, you see him take out a machete and walk with purpose toward her as she calls for help, and she yeah. fights him off. It's so exciting and terrifying because it feels so goddamn real. All right, put those two on there, and then we're done. <laughs> Nomad land and the Pentagor, and then we're done. We did it. What about the alpacas, Chris? Yeah, the alpacas. I think, I, think, I think that we should do the voting thing again for these five scenes, and whichever two have the most votes to make it to the list. Everybody pick one. Okay. More typing, guys. Great radio. Um... Shit. Oh God! I deleted <laughs> star next to. If you put a star next to alpaca, put it back because I think I deleted it. Oh. Uh, Wait, so actually, shouldn't everyone pick two or no? Let's start with one and see what it looks like. Okay. <laughs> There's a very surprising result here. Nicholas Cage screams about alpacas has overwhelming support. <laughs> I just think it's a more interesting list overall with that entry on there. Yeah. I'm down with that. We have two slots left. I think one of them should go to Nicolas Cage screams about alpacas. All right. 
In that case, Nicholas Cage, Green Bay Alpacas. In that case, should the last slot go to Nomadland? Should we let Nomadland have a second slot? See you down the road. I'm now that I have my alpacas on the list. I have. No, I'm going to cut in Pedagore. It's only Chris and I have seen it. It's excellent. You should watch it. You can go ahead and cut News of the World because I, while I do think that it is a, it is a good scene, I do agree with Chris that it, it is a little on the nose. So here's a question: Seed on the Road, Nomadland versus The Pickling. I think The Pickling is is one of the biggest jokes, one of the best jokes of 2020. But I am okay with Nomadland scooping in this last slot. Yeah, this is honestly this is a tough choice for me because I, I I was gonna maybe potentially throw my support behind uh, the pickling gag, but I love this scene in Nomadland too, though. Yep, Nomadland for me. I already said my piece about it, so it's perfect. Yeah, I think Nomadland as well. Yeah, with this overwhelming yeah. support, with all these asterisks. <laughs> well, there's funny asterisks. <laughs> It's like uh, the ghost from Host we, is also on this podcast. As long as we all agree that oh, no. the the pickle joke is 50 and a half. Now I'm scared because Brad just went really your, your audio went crazy and I was like I don't know if I jinxed us. I think it's the ghost. Brad say something. Hello? Oh my god. Oh, oh, oh god. Oh, no. the ghost is here. I'm to end the show because we're haunted. <laughs> okay. Well, it looks to be like um the scientific explanation for pickling is number 51 tied with Hoobie Halloween. Or yep. View Down the Road from Nomadland. Secure to our last slot, a third movie to have a second entry on the list. Guys, we have our top 50 moments of 2020. Nice. Am I still a ghost? Oh, God. Brad's still a robot. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, for people listening at home, um, the top list will be in the show notes. We won't read it all here. Uh, so go scroll through it. And the list you'll see there in the show notes is unordered. Off, off mic, we're going to rank these, vote on a ranking for them, and write it up as a list. And you you just witnessed. You've heard it all. You heard the sausage get made. This was a slash film list being made, and you heard it all. Uh, you'll, you'll just miss the voting part, because who wants to listen to us silently ranking things? Don't forget all the films we have at number 51. Oh, yeah. So many. I just want to point out that Capone's on this list, guys. <laughs> I forgot good about list. that. Oh, man. What a good list. What a good, cool, weird list we have. I'm very happy with this list, guys. How about you? Uh, yeah, it works for me. I'm I have really no happy. complaints. Right, I'm going well. to haunt you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back early next week uh, for the publication of the list. In the meantime, this is Slash Home Daily. Review us, rate us. Peter has a whole thing he reads. I don't have it in front of me. So uh, let us know if you enjoyed this podcast. If you want to hear us debate more lists on the internet, we will. Uh, other than that, guys, uh, take care. Uh, this is Slash Film Daily. I'm Jacob. That's Ben. That's Chris. That's HT. And that's Brad. See ya.